I'm over here now. Pardon the interruption, no need for introduction. It's the drunken monk. Turn this shit up a little something. I'm bucking, up in smoke, sipping Bacardi till I'm giving my car keys to Jimmy Ferrari. And we out, about to go jump in a mosh pit full of hundreds of hot chicks saying something obnoxious like, I gotta put my foot in your ass permit. When I'm done, I'll cook you in a Brooklyn blast furnace. And we're up. Okay. What did I just say? Um, the the thir- volume thirteen of the Brooklyn Blast Furnace Podcast Isolation Sessions, but part three of the very awesome and special Bane series. And I'm here with my man, bro. I'm so happy to see you, man. Yeah, Aaron Bedard, singer for Bane. I mean, we let's we can go into all that antagonize. We can go back to backbone, all that. Yeah. How are you doing, my man? I'm doing okay. All things considered, I'm hanging in there, man. Ah, yeah. Um, there in fucking ground zero. How was that for you last month? Ah, uh, it was. It had to be dark, man. It was dark, dude. Um, shit. It's so weird because I w- I've been out in it anyway because I work. I st- I, mean, I, st- I haven't stopped working. Well, I work every other day, but I'm every still- other day requires you to leave the house to like go out into it. Well, well, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I was alternating days with my boss. Like, I was going, I would be at work like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. He would do that Tuesday and Thursday. The next week, he would do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I would do Tuesday, Thursday. So it was every other, every other day. But I take the train. You know, I take the subway into, into midtown Manhattan. You know, I work, I work like four blocks from Times Square. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Man, I you know, really I, I try not to, I'm very, it's it's gonna sound I don't know how it's gonna sound, but I'm very skeptical of a lot of things. Um, I, I don't worry really. I've never been a worrier. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what I did, you know, I put on my mask, um, and I just. But, but see, the thing is, though, even taking the subway, there was hardly anybody on the trains anyway, so yeah. it wasn't even like a scary thing. Sure. You know what I mean? It's like, dude, rush hour. I've said this countless times on, I don't care. Every, every single time I speak to someone different, I don't care if I tell the same story or not. I don't care. Um, but it's been almost like a movie, bro. Like, I would get out of work at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. Yeah. Normally, like I said, I work right down the block from where the ball drops. And there's usually tens of thousands of people. Like I'm literally walking down the street, literally, and seeing like a dozen people and like three cars, like desolate. I did a little live thing just out of boredom, basically. I was literally walking down Madison Avenue and I walked like three full avenues before I even had to like look behind me to see if a car was coming down the street in the middle of Manhattan, dude. Very strange. I saw of downtown New York, downtown Boston, of just like desolation, apocalyptic-looking streets was fucking wild. I am legend type shit. To be in the heart of New York City and to just like be standing in that had to be wild. It's surreal. Yeah, surreal. Definitely shit. Horrifying. Like you guys were fucking ground zero there for a while. You know, I was really feeling for all my friends in New York. It's just has to be the scariest place on earth to be right now with the numbers the way they are. Yeah, man. I mean, but now, like, I just came back from the post office 
and I was literally online outside the post office for like an hour. Oh, because yeah, it's like online, and then and then you have to deal with whatever's in there. But I had to get some things out. But I'm like, it's just crazy. Well, I've been making my post office runs at like 7:30 a.m. I'm just I went one day at the wrong time, and there was a line, and I turned uh, and just bounced. I haven't had to wait in too many lines since this started. I've been laying pretty low, and my grocery store is not crazy. It's not banged out ever, so I've been pretty lucky. Beautiful, man. Yeah, I haven't, I, been, haven't been on a bus or on a train. Haven't been more than a few blocks from here. Right. The beginning of March. That's crazy, and it's it's funny too. It's like I'll be walking down the street, and a bus will go down the street, and the only person that's on the bus is the driver. I'm like, there's just yeah. empty buses. Yeah. But now, now I think because the weather's starting to get nice, there's people out now. And then the mayor said that the mayor said now basically it's up to you if you want to wear a mask. Cops aren't going to enforce it, so now it's going to be up to everybody. And then whatever happens, happens at this point because there's been so many deadlines that they were going to open everything back up, but they they all came and went already. So it's like they can say one thing. I'm like, all right, like whatever. I have like no opinion about it because. That can change, and that, that's been like the... New information every day. Nobody seems to really know. There's not a plan in place. So it's, not. It's, hard to go, it's hard to go too optimistic. It's hard to go too gloom and doom. You just got to okay. roll with it. That's I what I'm think. doing. It's like people are like, oh, how you doing? And honestly, I'm, I'm chilling, man. I'm chilling. What, what am I going to do? Yeah, I love hanging out in my room. I love watching movies, reading comic books. I love not having social obligations. So that's great. I'm cut out for this, you know? Yeah. I miss going to movies. I miss going to the casino. Obviously, fucking no baseballs killing me, but... Oh, dude. I'm doing yeah. a lot better than a lot of people that have families, that have elderly people that they're fucking worried about, you know. Of course. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, thank God. It's like, my girl is good. My daughter is good. My, my, my family is good. You know, I haven't stopped working. So, I, I mean, there's a lot of people that are a lot worse off than I am. And right. it sucks. And it's, I mean, who do you blame? You can't blame anybody. It is what it is at this point. Just an incredible period of life, man. It's just like yeah. an insane moment that we're living in. Absolutely yeah, man. Unbelievable that we're involved in something that is literally global, that everyone everywhere is being touched by is sort of a crazy thing. It's scary, but it's also fascinating, you know? It's absolutely fascinating. It's, it's We're going to remember this the rest of our lives. We're going to tell people in 40 years what this moment was like. They're going to want to know about this. Without a doubt. This is like, see, it's like my parents' generation, they had their John F. Kennedy moment, it, where they yeah. were when Kennedy was killed. Yeah, Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. Me, I was like, my, like, you know, you'll never forget where you were on 9-11. Right. And now, like, there's the younger kids who, you know, younger than me, this is like, where were you when this shit happened? And they'll always remember. It's their moment. It's true. It's fucking true. I feel so bad for the kids, man, that are like missing out on cool graduation parties and just like. Oh, my, yeah, my daughter, too. She's like, you know, we're supposed to, she, you know, she's about to go into the sixth grade, but she changes schools and she has no ceremony. There's no ceremony. All right. You get a diploma mailed to you. Like, like there's little things in life, dude, that's like. Those are little milestones in everyone's life that you should appreciate and enjoy because you only live once, man, and you're only a kid you once. ready to leave high school? You've been with your friends for four years. Everyone's about to go off to college, and it's just all ramping up to have this epic fucking spring, and it just gets stolen from you? Yeah. That's me. Like, sucks. You know, for some kids, for like an 18-year-old, summer is fucking everything. You know, you work oh, yeah. eight shit all year just to be able to have a summer. 
Yeah. Yeah, they don't even know. And I feel bad for them. Yeah, me too, man. So how are you making out over there? I mean, I mean, there's a thing. But where are you? Where, where are you? How far are you outside of like Boston? Like how- I'm right outside. I'm two T stops away from Harvard Square, which is officially in Cambridge, but is basically in Boston, a big tourist attraction in Boston. I'm okay. two quick T stops. I can get there in ten minutes. But okay. I live in a town. I don't know if it's really a town, but it's uh, right outside of Boston called Somerville. Okay. Small city. How, how far are you from Brookline? Not far. Not far. Okay. Over the bridge from Brookline. You know Brookline? I know Brookline from years and years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't been there since the mid-90s, but yeah, I'm familiar. There's a cool movie theater there, and I can ride my bike there. It takes me maybe 45 minutes to do it, but I do it. All right. That's cool. Not bad. It's not bad. Right over the bridge. Yeah. And it's it's calm. Like I said, it's it's never too, too crazy. We're yeah. right outside of Boston, but it doesn't feel like you're in a city. There's not a lot of hustle and bustle. I got a grocery store right on the corner that's very relaxed. So I couldn't, I, I couldn't be in a better place. I have a nice apartment. I love my apartment. Love my room. Have very respectful roommates. So awesome. I'm lucky. Good, man. Yeah, me too. I'm just chilling. So we're both very fortunate in the grand scheme of things, for real. Yeah. The worst thing is that I can't go to the fucking casino or can't go to the movies. If that's the worst thing that I can <laughs> Yo, it's like it's like. What was the last movie that you saw in the theater? I don't know. I'm trying to think of one. I wish I. No, actually, it wasn't Knives Out. The last movie I saw in a proper theater where I like went during the day and got popcorn and kicked back was Knives Out. And then me and some friends went to a museum to see Malick's Days of Heaven, which is like an all-time favorite. Got to see that on the big screen on a Friday, and that was the last last movie I saw and we were just starting to have like a weekly movie night where we were getting together at their apartment watching movies and that all came to a halt but yeah if I had known I would have went to a lot more movies I would have went to like six movies in six days in a row I would have oh, sure. frozen too I would have seen anything <laughs> <laughs> nice but the last movie I saw was Knives Out at the theater so you're, a, so, you're a, so you're a big movie guy yeah I love the movies for sure yeah. and sadly I can't go too deep on horror movies with you I have a few things a few periods in my life where I paid a little bit of attention to them, but right. I, well, I'm not, I'm not just I'm not just rooted in that kind of stuff at all. Um, I'm kind of it's kind of like music. Of course, there's my hardcore, and I love like underground, like underground grimy, ignorant hip hop, like underground shit. Yeah. And I love my metal from back in the day. Yeah. And again, I have my guilty pleasures too, man. You know what I mean? I can't listen to fucking you know Agnostic Front every single day. You know. I mean, you potentially can, but, you know, you know every, once, every once in a while, you know, listen, I, I'm not mad at, you know, I, I'll listen to a fucking Neil Diamond song, bro. I'm not, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no, I got some skeletons in my closet. We don't have to go there, but. Oh, no? For sure. For Come sure. on, you got to let some out of the closet, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. But yeah, I'm really, I'm really into film. I was seeing you in the Jesse from from Cold as Life go into it, man, was just so cool to watch. There's two dudes that love, clearly love and are impassioned about horror films. I, I could listen to that shit forever, even though it's not really my yeah. genre. I love people that are very passionate about the sort of nerdy things that they're in. Oh, I love it, bro. And like into, you, that you enjoy sort of going to the spots where certain scenes were filmed. I, really uh, I love that shit, man. I love the history of it and... It's just like whatever you're into, and I've I've hit so many different places from so many 
different kinds of, you know, whether it's pop culture or true crime or, you know, the, the, the Legion of Doom, the Road Warriors, or in Times Square, it's like from like a 1985 photo shoot. I'm like, I've been here a million times, but let me just get that. Like, that's just cool to me. I don't know. It's all stuff. It's also nostalgia to me. Is like, you, you know, all that stuff. I, I, I've always been interested in that stuff, but was never able to put my finger on it. And then when Danny Boy from House of Pain started the whole... Delta Bravo urban exploration team. That's what, that's where I got the idea. It's like this whole thing. Cause I don't know if you listen, but Danny boy bought the house from the outsiders. Okay. And he from, could be, from the movie, the outsiders. Yes. Yeah. Danny boy from house of pain bought the house in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. That the outsiders was filmed in and he created the outsiders house museum. And it's, oh, it's, a museum. it's a museum. It's incredible, dude. Yeah. So that started like this whole thing of trying to find film locations or whatever you're into, you know? So I'm like, I always love that shit. And I remember like when the internet was like new, I'm a huge Friday the 13th guy. And I was like, I always wanted to know where exactly, where was Camp Crystal Lake? Where'd they film that? And it was in, and it was in Blairstown, New Jersey. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Well, at least now I know. And then once all that film location thing came to fruition, I'm like, now it gives me a reason. I want to go there and now take a picture of what it looks like now and then take a screenshot from the movie and superimpose it onto what it looks like now, the surrounding area, just a before and after in one shot. And I've been there, I don't know how many times since now. You know, so we go all over the place. I mean, it could be somewhere right around the block from you that you don't even realize. And you just look it up like blah, 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 filmed in... Somerville Mass, and then you'll, you'll see like a crazy thing that happened, whether it's history or a movie or anything, you know, a sports figure just walking down the street and there's a picture of it like, oh shit, like this happened right here. Never even know. I always love that shit. I think it's cool. So, it's yeah, man. With that, with movies in a deep way. Oh, yeah. I what feel was like the thing where you say like it, it's nostalgic. I think it's cool the things we really seem to really get into as adults seem to kind to when we were kids, the things that we were really wide-eyed about. Oh, we absolutely, man. And it's weird. I mean, I'm 44, and it seems like lately I've been getting really... I'm watching, like... I, I'll put it to YouTube, like, WWF 1982. And I'm watching, like, superstars of wrestling from, like, Channel 9. And I remember some of it. And I must have been, like, six years old sitting in front of the TV as a little kid. And I'm like... I can't believe that this stuff is even on YouTube and I'm watching this again. And it's just like, I don't know. It's just maybe cause I'm getting older. I'm having a midlife crisis or something, Aaron. I, don't know. I find myself gravitating to hobbies that my old man was railing to that. I was too young to sort of understand at the time, but was, you know, I worshiped my dad and wanted to know all the things he knew about. And I have an obsession with Vietnam where, you know, he fought in that war when I was a kid, it wasn't something he liked to talk about. Nobody would talk about it in the early seventies, mid seventies. Right. Really talk about it. until. Platoon happened and everybody started telling their stories much, much later. But when I was a kid, it was highly fascinating to me because it was so taboo. Oh, yeah. I had been there and I knew that it had been awful because he wouldn't talk about it. So Oof. now I find myself endlessly fascinated with that, with that world. And I think it yeah. just brings back to being a curious kid, you know? Yeah, it's great, man. It's, yeah. it's, it's also another fact that like the Vietnam War is also a fascinating war. It's like, my biological father, he was in the Marine Corps for a couple of years, but he told me it was like, besides like 
at the time, my sister was only born. I wasn't even born yet. I was born in 75, but he was all, I mean, he went through Paris Island and stuff. He was in the Marines and he was all rucked up, ready to go. I don't remember what base he was at, but he was about to go in 69, about to go to Vietnam. And for some weird reason, for some weird reason, it was like his platoon and another platoon were recalled and he never went. And he was like, it was like, I don't know what it was, but it was like the happiest day of my life. We were, we were ready. We were about to get on a plane and go. And he never went. 69 was a bad year for that war too. It was, we were on our heels, like a lot of people dying. 68, yeah. 69 was like a real high watermark for us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't remember why, like, like we don't speak anymore or anything like that, but I don't, I don't remember why, but. I don't even think he told me why, but there was a specific reason. For some weird reason, his platoon and another one got recalled or something happened and they were like, no, nah, we don't need you. Or I don't know, some shit like that. The hands of fate intervened. Jesus, that's... Something like that, man. You got to get know. lucky in the right times in this life. You got to be lucky in the right spot. Yeah, it's a pretty good time to be lucky, no? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> shit, do you remember? I see, I remember... You remember the first movie that you ever saw in the theater as a little kid? Maybe with, with your parents or something like that? I do. I my, mean, <laughs> my mom was pretty good about taking us to the movies. I mean, I saw Close Encounters on the big screen. Nice. I saw Lost Ark. I saw Rocky One on the big screen. Like, we would make these trips to the movies. Um, I don't know if I, I... I can remember seeing, like, Fantasia. I think she was bringing us... To Disney movies, kids movies where like I couldn't even sit still through a whole movie. Right. My right. mom, you know, it was just me, my mom, and my kid brother. We were we were real poor. My dad was gone, didn't even have a car, and she was pretty good about bringing us to the movies. My mom was wild because she was very very strict. She was a straight hippie from the sixties. Nice. Wouldn't watch the Lone Ranger. Couldn't watch the Three Stooges. Anything sort of violent, we were protected from. Really? Couldn't play with guns, couldn't play with toy soldiers. And like, so I, of course, became obsessed with all those things. Now my favorite movies are the most violent movies. And, you know, as soon as I could start watching, you know, violent films on my own, that's, that's what I gravitated towards because she was so protective. Her heart was in the right place, but it, it backfired on her, basically. <laughs> Trying to protect us from things you can't fucking protect kids from, especially living in a city. I grew up in a city, so like, yeah, I'm not going to stay protected from that stuff. No, no, no. I can't remember. I remember like Close Encounters. I remember sort of being along for that ride in a very, very big theater yeah. and seeing fucking like Jaws hanging on the floor the whole time. Sure. Still an incredible, incredible film. Absolutely. But Rocky One was like, you know, life altering in that. I mean, that was a movie that just blew me, made me feel the whole gambit of emotion. And then I became obsessed with boxing with rocky with wanting to be a boxer that was the first movie that like changed my tra trajectory as a child all i wanted to play with was like toy boxers and, you know really i saw i didn't see rocky one in the theater i, re I remember it was, it's funny yesterday it was either yesterday or the day before i was talking to my daughter because yeah. all the time on tv rocky one of the rocky movies is always on tv there's always yeah. a marathon or whatever but rocky three was on and i saw that that was the first one that I saw in the theater in 82. Okay. I was six. And I remember it was like opening day. And I remember that shit vividly, like the, the running on the beach. And so like, I remember that vividly. But Rocky, Rocky as a whole is probably my favorite franchise. Yeah. Period. 
like out of any other movie, like overall Rocky, like, yo man, I'm telling you, you want skeletons out of the closet. Every time the end of Rocky two, it gets me every time, bro. I bro, Rocky Two at the end when he's all beat up and he's like, it's the greatest night in the history of my life and all that shit. Fun man, where he just wants Adrian in the ring. It makes you cry. Oh, and he's crying now thinking about it. It's terrible, isn't it? Rocky One is. I mean, Rocky Two is fine because it's basically like it picks up immediately. You know, the moment right. after Rocky ends. That's the only one that I ever really paid much attention. I, I can't even tell you the difference between Rocky Three. I saw them when I was a kid, Mr. T and the Russian guy, but. Yeah. I didn't know. No, they're, 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 more, they're definitely not great movies. They're more fun. But Rocky 1 and Rocky 2 are just incredible movies, period. Incredible. Yeah. But the, listen, listen the, the, at the very end of Rocky 2, when Rocky is talking into the mic and he says that it's the greatest night in the history of his life besides <laughs> his kid being born and he's all beat up and he's about to start crying and he did, does the whole, yo, Adrian, I did it. It gets me every time, bro. <laughs> to God, I want to say that the first time I saw it, I had this feeling of like, this is kind of cheesy, where they both fell at the same time. But yes. I bet it's not true. I'll bet that didn't come until years later. When I was a teenager, I became a pretty hardcore film snob and really became like pretty fucking unbearable about my opinions on movies. Bro, it's dramatic as hell, bro. <laughs> it never really worked for me. It never, like Rocky One was so real. It was just the fact that oh, without a doubt. In the fight, just is so fucking real. I loved it. There's something about the brutality of yeah, you don't get to win. Like you don't get everything. You only get part of what you want. And that's right. Learning that at a young age, really having to go over that over and over. Like the hero didn't win. He didn't win the fight. He didn't. He just, he just did what he he like set a goal for himself and he reached it. And yeah. I think I think it set up my relationship with most other movies after that, where I gravitated towards that level of honesty. Like yeah. Oh, it's definitely real, man. Yeah, it's it's. There's a lot of things in those movies, whether it's a little, a little monologue or a little something where it's a lot about life and people. People like probably watching and listening to this, like, oh, you got to be kidding me! It's fucking Rocky, but it's the truth, man. There's like a lot of things. It's like life lessons and shit like that within those. It's movies. so easy to have him win that fight. It's everyone is so thrilled. No one's gonna question it, and still he had the nerve to not go there. Yeah. To just be like, yeah. I want to make it a little bit more honest than that. And like, yeah, maybe six, seven-year-old me is going to be very disappointed and confused, but he felt that that lesson needed to be learned. Yeah. And I have so much respect for it. It's brilliant. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah. yeah, dude. Yeah, the first movie that I remember seeing in the movie theater was the fucking jazz. <laughs> oh, wow. I never, I don't even know what that is. It's, it's, it's the movie, it's the Neil Diamond movie. Yeah, if they're singing in a movie. I usually my brain just gets. Yeah, but I had no choice. I like went with my parents. Like it was, I was just. My mom, I'm sure she was dragging me to see cartoons that was all singing and stuff. I think we saw Bambi at the movies. Like I was going yeah. to see, but didn't hit the radar till. Didn't realize how cool movies were till Rocky Raiders of the Lost Ark was huge. Oh, insane! Yeah, yeah. And then I moved to Virginia. I moved to moved and lived with my dad when I was twelve and thirteen, and um, he just gave me a ton of freedom like suddenly i could do whatever i wanted he was just the polar opposite of my mom i could stay up late and just he would give me money to go to the mall so i was just seeing everything in the early 80s i was seeing everything yeah that's great man. hbo suddenly all of a sudden hearing you guys talk about your experience watch, watching the exorcist and made me laugh because i watched the exorcist home alone at 12 years old 
life changing, dude. I have no idea what I was getting. It's fucking life changing, dude. Bro, that was the movie. It's like my daughter, like I know that movie upside down, backwards, forwards. I know every line in it. So my daughter, like I'm guilty. Like I, I wanted my daughter to get into horror movies. So I eased her in slow, like gremlins. You know, you had the little cute little one, you know, little easing her in. Okay. And then she actually said, you know, she's like, Dad, what's like the scariest movie you've ever seen? And I'm like, oh, it's The Exorcist. Yeah. And then when it came time for her to watch it, I would cover her eyes with certain parts, like the whole crucifix scene, like, nah, that, you have your eyes closed. And certain things, like, I'll make silly noises. I'll make silly noises. Spencer sitting right next to her. You knew the movie so well. You knew it. So well. I'm like, oh, wait, it's coming up. And, I'm, and I'll, like, cover her ears and I'll go, la, 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 make silly noises <laughs> so that she doesn't hear certain things. Yeah, but and if she looks at me and she's like, "It's not even scary, Dad." She just has a potty mouth. I'm like, "What?" When people tell me that movie doesn't scare them, it blows my fucking mind. It's, it's like another generation of kids. Yeah, like this this generation of kids, like they're just like, "Oh yeah, it's uh, whatever." She just curses a lot. Like, yo, it's so much more. It's so crazy. I find it to be the scariest movie. I I yeah. tell people the scariest movie I've ever seen. The movie that scared me the most, that affected me the most. You may laugh at this. People are very polarized on this movie. It's the Blair Witch Project, the first Blair Witch Project. Okay. Like, fucked me up to this day. Like, I still don't <laughs> like the woods. But other than that, The Exorcist is just the, the kingpin of true. Oh, without a doubt. It's so deep. It gets, there's so much more to that movie than what's on the surface. It gets, it, I can, I could nerd out about that stuff all day long. It's even like the stuff that happened, like, on the scene before after the movie was filmed like who died this and that like yeah. the set burned down like and then oh yeah there's so much history with just the making of that movie it's it's insane i didn't know anything about that stuff. oh dude i think it was like yeah, the 20 20- we started at midnight at that theater in brookline actually we started last year on halloween at midnight went it was fucking awesome oh that's insane yeah great it's shit so, so now you grew, where'd you grow? You grew up where? I grew up in Worcester, which gotcha. is about 40 miles east of here, west of here. It's the second largest city in Massachusetts. Okay. It's like a mini Boston, never quite took off like Boston, but it's a real city that has, you know, all the things that, that, that a pretty large city would have going on. I don't know if you've ever been there to the Palladium for any of the, like, the hardcore metal fests they have in Worcester. I was there, I was there one time on June 18th. Hey, what was that? That was your final show, and I don't like to talk about that. <laughs> that okay, so yeah, so yeah. Of That's course, I was at that show. That's yeah, where I was there. all my band started. I grew up there, moved away for a couple of years, got sent to live with my father in Virginia, then came back and lived there up until 2001. And then I moved to Baltimore for a few years, and then finally made it to Boston. Gotcha. Now, yeah. what? Now, what? What was your like? I know that obviously you said, you know, you're, you're, you know, you went to the movies a lot when, as you were a kid, you know, when you were a kid, was there like a lot of music playing in your house and stuff like that as well? Or no, since your mom was a hippie. My mom had a record collection. My mom was a music head. There was music playing all the time. She was a big like Beatles fan, Van Morrison, Bob Marley, Joni Mitchell. And she used to let me fuck with the records. Like I remember lying on the living room floor and reading reading like, you know, the Sgt. Pepper's Only Heart Club Man had this gatefold with all, all the lyrics and you could read along. And I really liked that, but I didn't understand music. I didn't really know, didn't have taste in music. It was just sort of something that was cool. My mom did it and I liked when it was on, but I couldn't tell you who was who or what was what. Even 
into the years that most people are starting to like connect with music. Karen Vogel talked about getting into metal early and stuff. I was 12 and 13 in Virginia, and there were kids in my neighborhood that were fucking with Black Sabbath, Motley Crue, Def Leppard, The Police, and it still felt like something that was just somebody else's. It was cool. I had a couple cassettes, but I didn't love music until I heard the Sex Pistols. That was like this light bulb going on. I heard him swearing. I heard the like anger in it, and then it was just like. Uh, now, now I did you did you accidentally stumble upon that, or somebody turned you on? I had to that? a friend in my neighborhood. I moved back from Virginia. I had a summer before I had to start high school, where I was just kind of kicking around my neighborhood. And there was a kid who rode a skateboard, and I became friends with him. Got my own skateboard, and uh, he had an older brother who was into cool stuff, like he was into Billy Idol, Stray Cats, Adamant. But he also had the Sex Pistols in there. He had a Black Flag record in there. So we used to raid his record collection. And that was the turning point moment where suddenly all I cared about was music. It's just I went from not really even understanding it, couldn't tell you the difference between literally the police and Black Sabbath. I couldn't have articulated what the difference was there to just knowing that the Sex Pistols were something, the Dead Kennedys were something more. And then I became fucking obsessed. Like, really obsessed with skateboarding and discovering new bands and sort of. Yeah, I was at the perfect, I guess I was 14 and like just ready to rebel against fucking everything. I was filled with anger and confusion. I'd had a kind of a turbulent childhood and suddenly these bands were speaking to me. Yeah, dude. I think I think we all, all like around the, like the same kind of thing. It's we all think I have we had that common denominator. I think a lot most of us because like the same here, like. I had a very turbulent childhood. I grew up, my, my, my father had a huge vinyl record collection. There was music constantly in the house. And then I told the story a million times, but I had a, I, I say she's a babysitter, but she would just make sure I didn't get run over or whatever. But she used to like smoke pot and shit. But she, I was like nine or 10 and she showed me the, the, the vinyl, the record, Motley Crue Shout at the Devil. And, and as like a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old, however old I was, I'm looking at, and, and now it's very cheesy. It's so silly now, but yeah, you look at that yeah. as a little kid and these guys with the fire and the pentagrams, like, yo, this is evil. Like, this is some shit, like, some shit yeah. I know that my parents. It's like an evil voice, right? The record is in there, some just like really stark evil narration. Before it the music starts came. out, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was that. It, bro, it was that and Twisted Sisters Stay Hungry. D Snyder with a big bone on it. It was like so silly if you look at it now, but as a that was like my my version of like how so many people got into KISS with the imagery and stuff like that. Yeah. And then, you know, and then I graduated, I started listening, and then it was also a big MTV time. Yeah. So there's all those and then there was Headbangers Ball and all that stuff. So as a little kid, you know, I have I had the mullet and I'm listening to Anthrax and and all these early Metallica. And then yeah. and then I saw at Lemoore's here in Brooklyn, it was Suicidal Tendencies was playing and I was huge into this, into them and it was a Lights Camera Revolution tour and Leeway was direct support for them. And I had never heard them or seen them live. This was at the in the eight and the end of 89. And yeah. I saw them, and that was my segue from being more of like a metalhead into hardcore because that was the perfect crossover band. Yeah. And then it was from there, and I say this all the time, but I, it was like the next day I bought Born to Expire, 
And the guy who sold it to me was like, well, if you like this, you'll like this. And he sold me Agnostic Front, Liberty and Justice. Fuck yeah. And then I think right after that, I bought the first live at CBGB's AF record. And then it was off to the races from there. Sure. Yeah, okay. man. It was, yeah. So, so yeah, it was just angry, you know, pissed off for whatever reason. And then even like later on, like I'm angry. Why? I don't even know why I was angry. I was just rebelling against everything. Yeah, so, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, but it's a beautiful thing, man. I love this shit. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's very unique. I, I, what was it? I think it was either James I was talking to, or maybe I think it was James. It was very just it's very unique. There's no other scene like it. There really isn't. No, I know? agree. I agree. None whatsoever. I mean, I mean, we I mean, I definitely I have to get into the into your final show later on, but it was um, you know, I always throw this reference out there. It's like you don't see somebody like flying from like Germany or something like that into Brooklyn to see Jay-Z at the Barclays Center. You're not seeing that. But you're going to see a plane full of people coming from Europe to the final Bane show. Yeah, I know it. It's, it's crazy. It's, it, there's, no, there's nothing else like that. Like I also said, you know, I, I was booking shows for a little while, and I said this a couple of episodes ago, and it was a little small little club in Brooklyn, tiny, and I had a version of Leeway play. And it was crazy full circle for me because they got me into this stuff. I became friends with Eddie and this. So I, had, I booked them. And there was a, it was only one person, but it was still, it was big for me. Like, it was a guy from Germany who flew all the way from Germany to, to go to a Sunday matinee to watch Leeway play for 45 minutes. Fuck yeah. It's, it's, you know what I mean? It's like there's, there's something to be said for that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, man. So it hooks in you and you feel connected with it in a way that's indescribable that you will do the most irrational thing, you know? Yeah, it makes no sense. It's it's batshit crazy. It's insane. Plane tickets, hotels, you're taking off of work, planning, this and that for a half hour, 45 minutes to go see Leeway in a little club on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Every young touring band that that hopped into a van and slept on floors and ate whatever they had to eat and knew they weren't gonna make much money. And just went and did it because they had to stay connected with this and meeting new kids and yeah like it's fucking absurd <laughs> it's also completely normal and we can explain to anybody that wants to hear why yeah. it needed to be done why it was the coolest choice to make you know? it was absolutely the coolest choice to make it's not easy you're like missing out on education you're missing out on job opportunities you got relationships falling apart at home but it's just you know the choice still was easy. <laughs> and you got stories for, for a lifetime, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the best thing that ever could have happened to me is that I found, you know, a band that could finally leave town and go and show me the world. Before Bain, I had never been anywhere other than Virginia. Yeah. But California, to me, was Mars. Oh, yeah. Been. Without a doubt. Now, what was, now, after, after your whole moment where you found you know the sex pistols and the dead kennedys and stuff how long after how how old were you you were like 14 you said 14 i was just starting high school and then there it's funny it's looking back it feels like it was a huge chunk of time feels like this significant part of my life but really it's like a year like a year and a half of i'm not i don't not quite old enough to have friends outside the neighborhood i don't have any money i still have a very domineering mother so i have to you know i have to figure it out as I go along with, with nobody that wants to help me, even the few punk kids 
in my high school just thought I was a poser because I, you know, I didn't know anything. I just was completely clean slate. So there's this period of a, yeah, a good year before I sort of make my way out of my neighborhood into downtown, realize where the punk section is at the record store, start stealing records, start like meeting a few other people to tell me, oh, if you like this, check out the circle jerks. This is what a fanzine is. You know, this is what a seven inch is. Yeah. So then there's that year where just like, yeah, the world is starting to sort of open up. There was an older kid who gave me a compilation that had like 29 different bands and all different styles of hardcore where I could sort of realize the sound that I gravitated towards more than some of the other stuff. You know, I knew that I liked seven seconds more than I liked Flipper, you know, things like yes. that. And then, um, and there's like a full fucking year, year and a half where I don't go to a show where there's just no, I can't see this music live. The only places in Worcester were 18 plus or 21 plus. They're bars. I can't get into them. I don't have to sneak into them. I don't have any friends with cars yet. There's just this sort of terrible year just hanging around, fighting with my mother constantly over curfew and over this music that I'm playing and that like my hair is a bunch of different colors. I'm like never going to school. I'm in full on rebellion. And then finally, you know, I make it to 16 and now my friends start to have cars and we start going to shows. I like get to start driving out here to Boston, seeing shows. And then we realize, oh, we can make our own bands and book shows. There were like a few older kids that, you know, wanted to create our own thing. And Mr. I was on the ground floor of the early conversations about we just do it. We just go to a VFW hall, convince them to let us have it for a night. We'll rent the PA. So-and-so will bring the PA. We'll book all of our friends' bands. And it, it, and then suddenly, like, we had bands. Like, suddenly, you know, we were making our own bands, had a scene in Worcester, and then we're shooting out, going to shows everywhere. Like, I saw everything in 86, 87. Like, I saw the transition of Agnostic Front start playing more metal shows you know i saw like i had victim in pain before cause for alarm came out i sort of watched this interesting transition and the scene in worcester was so small because it was all a mismatch of metal kids punk kids hardcore kids like my first band had just two straight up metal dudes our bass player he didn't know from hardcore he, he liked iron maiden and metallica he didn't even know but he was down to make a band with us and play what was the name of that band the name of that band <laughs> I love this question. Everyone always lives. What was the name of it? <laughs> the name of the first band was called Aggressive Hate. Of course it was. <laughs> and then the second band was called Raging Hope. Oh, that's awesome. I, yeah, love, so, I love that shit. <laughs> we had a little transition point there. Yeah. It was me and the same guitar player. And it was the same kid that like, I discovered the sex this was with, discovered skateboarding with. He stayed my very good friend. All through most of my teen years, we started our early dance together. <clears throat> so yeah, so there's like the, there's the window where I don't really know anything, then I start figuring it out. Then we make bands and we're going to shows, going to see Black Flag and Circle Jerks and Suicidal Tendencies. And then in '80s, I think it was '87. Might have been late '86. Might have actually been late '86, where I go to see a big show in Rhode Island and Crippled Youth opens. Wow. They're 13 year old kids. No one's really heard of them yet. And they just blow me away visually. Every, everything about their aesthetic, their, the way they were, that they were young, that they, you know, agnostic front, those guys, they just seemed older. They just seemed sort of unattainable, untouchable. Right. And these were like 
kids wearing hooded sweatshirts and big sneakers and they just seemed like regular dudes after the show they were just hanging out on the floor dancing to the next bands and i just somehow ended up talking to the bass player his name was matt and he was just very very cool to me i i somehow just told him i'd never seen anything like that that was maybe you know the best set of music i've ever seen right well there's a whole thing going on right now in connecticut in new york you should check out these bands and he told me youth of today underdog and the Chromax. that's the three names that he gave me and i just you know had all the records that i i mean youth of today records I had to order away from in the mail but yeah. like i bought age of quarrel that that week yeah somebody gave me that that mixtape it was like 120 minute mixtape and it was like three use it today records on it like front and back like that shit got played out worn out ridiculous man ridiculous and it's it's weird too because back then like i wasn't straight edge like i don't i don't i mean i have this little stupid thing but i don't drink i don't do any drugs or anything like that anymore but but even like back then i would be drinking beers as a little rebellious 16 year old kid but something about what what ray was talking about like always spoke to me even though i didn't follow that exact lifestyle that music and that anger just his voice like there's so much in it it's just channeled anger it's just it spoke to me so they were one of my favorite bands early on big time me too they were the real they were the one that it's almost hard to find the exact words because I was so in love with so much of the music and so much of the scene and metal stuff and rap stuff yep. and hardcore stuff and something about them, the message and this feeling of togetherness that they were creating that connected with me on a just a on a higher level. It was real, man. You 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 felt that it was it was real. You just I you know being young coming to shows in Boston, you kind of had to make a decision point if you were going to be kind of a hard guy. There were hard bands. There were very hard dancers. There were tough inner city kids that were like they were violent dancing was violent there was a, you know an air of violence to yeah. come here that was foreign to me because in Worcester we were we weren't tough at all we weren't like inner city kids we right. were like you know regular punk kids I was listening to Rights of the Spring and stuff like that as much as I was listening to hardcore music but you right. come out here and see Wrecking Crew see Slapshot and right. shit was fucking rough like I would oh, get yeah clock dancing and you know it was like there was a confusing moment right there on the cusp there was a confusing moment where i didn't know if i was going to be able to be welcome here because i wasn't a hard kid i wasn't down for fighting and then all of a sudden there was just this light like you today were there and they were talking about different things and had nothing to do with being hard with being mean with wanting to hurt other kids and i was the perfect fucking age i was just yeah. like right there at yeah. the right moment and suddenly yeah, going to hardcore shows could be your whole world and you didn't have to be tough. You didn't have to be hard. Right. As crazy as you want, but you weren't hurting each other. You loved each other. You were a part of this this scene, this youth crew. And that that was it. That was the moment where I was on a path that I I mean, arguably I still haven't really gotten straight too far from it. Where No, you're still, still yeah, you're still, you're still doing things, bro. And that's I love made complete and total sense. There was no more confusion. Like, oh I don't know. I I don't want to punch somebody. I don't want to be fighting with other punk kids after a show. It doesn't make any sense to me actually. It makes no sense. You said today you know they like clarified it all. They made yes. it all completely coherent to me that okay, yeah. And then it exploded and then 87, 88, it's just like insane youth of today's coming around all the time 
eye for an eye starts. I'm going to the anthrax. I'm going to see these. I have friends that are just like as invested in this as I am. So there's this two year period. And it's funny, it might have not even been two whole years. It feels like a lifetime. Of course. It just was, you know, a show every fucking weekend. It was all you cared about. You're just getting, you just obsessed, oh, yeah. completely obsessed. You know, Revelation Records started, you start buying seven inches and you're hanging the lyric sheets on the wall. And there was a window there where it was just fucking all I cared about. And it's yeah. funny how quickly it's just like, then it fades. Then just like, boom, shelter starts. You for today, you for today anymore. Those guys all start quicksand. People are growing their hair out. People are listening to rock and roll. And it just suddenly it ended. It was just flash. And I was right there, lucky to be 17 and 18 years old in it. Yeah. And I was really lucky. Yeah. Fortunate, man. You got yeah. lucky with all that stuff. Yeah, same here. Especially like in New York, man. Like, you know, those early 90s, you know, those late 80s, early 90s was incredible. Man. There was so much going on. Venues yeah. everywhere, bands everywhere. Great. The story you told the other night about how you guys would have to make hard choices. You'd look at a at the yeah. voice and be like, fuck, do we go to New Jersey? Do we go into the city? Yeah, it's like there's not enough hours in the day. So we got to like, uh, there's like four amazing choices. But what do you do? You got to go to one, try to make two, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, let's see, you know, like I said, like, you know, let's see. All right, well, who's going on last here? But then, all right, well, this band's all right, but then, but this band, I got to see them, but then, but now, but between traffic, are we going to take the train? Can we make it? So you would have to have a whole plan. And we did that a lot, man. It was beautiful. And it felt like life or death. It felt like the most important thing in the world to get to, to get there to see this band. You needed to it see was the most important thing. Yeah. It was absolutely the most important thing. I'm 16, 17 years old, working in like a little deli for friggin' side pocket party money. With no responsibilities, mm-hmm. it was the most important thing at that time. Without a doubt, go to shows, go have fun. It's all about let's have fun and hanging out with your friends, and sometimes just doing stupid shit. Absolutely right. Was- you know, doing knucklehead, stupid teenage shit, going to fucking hardcore shows, yeah. and you're indestructible. That was absolutely the most important thing that had to happen. Yeah, for that time. Sure, that was my experience as well, for sure. Yeah. So now, now, what? what uh, well, you had your couple of first first couple of bands, and then how far after that did you like get into and start Backbone? I don't see. I'm 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 like I'm like more of like the new like yes, I do know about hardcore, but like somebody like like a band like Backbone, I'm not really too familiar with for some weird reason. There's not a lot to it. I mean, it was you know we 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 recorded a four track demo in a rehearsal space, and we did one song that made it on a Tang Records compilation that didn't come out for like six years after the band broke up. You know? Is that demo available anywhere? Can I hear that demo somewhere? Ugh, I'm not a big collector of that stuff. Um, I, you know, I have some friends that I think did a better job of sort of going back and finding some of the, the pre-Bane stuff that we were involved in. I've heard stories of some people having it, but it's garbage, man. It's not, you don't want to hear that. It's really, really bad music. It's not I good. want to hear it. It's not bad music. I want, maybe it's on YouTube. I, I bet it might be on YouTube. You'd be shocked. It's not bad music. You're just, no, it's just early pre-Bane stuff, and you don't want people to hear it. <laughs> it all happened very quickly. Aggressive hate bled right. You know, then I found music today, so then my new band became a posse band called Raising Hope. And then <laughs> the all and breakdown started happening, and Raising Hope stopped, and then I started Backbone and was with dudes that, had better gear 
that were listening to heavier music that knew what you know raw deal was and stuff and then backbone was just sort of an emulation of the more harder more real new york style of music it wasn't like tough guy stuff but it was just all rougher around the edges is what when, when, when Zach relayed the message to me saying that you were down for this, I'm not going to put it out there, but he sent me your email address. Yeah. Dude, I audibly laughed out loud on the train when I read it because it's like the hardest email ever. <laughs> I was like, you got to be kidding me. That's his email? That's the greatest email address ever. That's funny. I was laughing, dude. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big big demo for me that's a big moment i was like i can't believe that his email address is that and that's great because he was never he was the one not even in that band so that just shows like that's so good <laughs> so good dude so now all right so after uh, well backbone didn't last very long you said and then was there anything in between backbone and bane there was but it, it was like rock stuff it was like i sort of after burn broke up Super Touch broke up. It's just like I'd lost interest in what was happening on the front lines of hardcore and started hanging out with sort of just like dudes that were more into <coughs> rock and roll, Sunny Day Real Estate, Senfield, stuff like that. I started drumming. I was a huge Quicksand fan, huge Dinosaur Jr. fan. Started drumming in these, I guess, for lack of a better word, post-hardcore bands. We wouldn't have even thought of that term at the time. Right. We were just like, Kids had, you know, come up loving hardcore and punk in the 80s. And now these guys knew how to play their instruments a little bit more. And I knew a little bit about the drums. Yeah. So there was a couple. Wow, there was like three years where I was drumming with the same band. The band started. It's kind of a funny story. Make you laugh. Started, we were called Crown of Thorns. We named ourselves Crown of Thorns. Oh, shit. Was, uh, what was, what's the pre-Pearl Jam band? They had a song called Crown of Thorns. What's the, the band before Pearl Jam that was on the thing? I don't know. Pre-Pearl Jam band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mother Love Bone, they were called. Oh, Mother, of course, okay. They had a song called Crown of Thorns, so we stole that. But somebody, I don't know how word got, but somebody in our camp found out that in the early 90s there was a band in New York called Crown of Thorns. And I remember them telling us, and I think they're kind of fucking scary dudes. Like, somehow the word had made it into our bizarre little circle that maybe we should change our name. So we, we, we didn't even have a demo out yet, but somehow it had come to us that this might not be the best thing to call you, your band. <laughs> That's so over under. And we, we, we did a demo. We played some shows. We got to come out to Boston and play. We played with like Dinosaur Jr. We played with Jawbox. We got to play some cool shows. Wow. And uh, yeah, that was the, that was like actually your era, the early 90s. I was kind of shut off. I missed out on a lot of what was going on. I knew about Biohazard because they were on TV and they were like doing shit with Onyx. And, yeah. But it didn't, none of it was speaking to me the way hardcore heads in the... In, yeah, in they the were just, they were just di- gigantic around here. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and it's cool and I love hearing people where that's their error and stuff, but it just wasn't, I wasn't paying a lot of attention. I was very into hip hop at that time, but was really into just a lot of indie rock bands, listening to a lot of like Liz Fair and, <clears throat> this DC band called Tsunami I was fucking with. It's a lot of sort of weird stuff. Yeah. And that went on until 95. That went on until 1995 until I discovered, I saw a poster for, for that band Strife, that Victory Records band. Sure. I saw a poster in a record store where they looked so cool it brought me back to sort of my era. The poster had them wearing 
varsity jackets and big champion sweatshirts and yep. X on the hand. So I picked up that Strife record and sort of started reconnecting with what was going on now. Bands like yeah. Unbroken and Undertow and Mouthpiece. Got yeah. that anti-matter comp that Norm put out and sort of started to find my bearings again. And then, yeah, and then Aaron Dahlbeck came knocking. So that was that. But you can't just say, and that was that, because there's so much more than that was that. Yeah, well, that's the beginning. Of, that's, that's the start of that. Oh, idea. my God. All right, so I don't even know, man. Like, where do you want to begin with with the whole... All right, so you get Bane to... All right, so Aaron, Aaron at the time was in Converge. He's in Converge. I'm suddenly sort of re-excited re about hardcore again, and then we decided to do a Backbone reunion. Okay. Backbone was a band that after we broke up, kids started caring way more about us. People were buzzing about us. Isn't we that were, weird? It's so weird when that happens. And I was out of it. I was really not paying attention. So when I would see those guys and they would sort of say, oh, should we play a show again? I just didn't think I was ever coming back. I just was gone from hardcore. I was drumming. I was still straight edge, still cared very much about fanzines and the culture and sort of keeping up with what was going on. But I just couldn't connect with a lot of hardline veganism and the whole religious thing really deeply, deeply offended me. There was a lot of things where I just felt like this isn't my place anymore. It changed so much. Loved Quicksand. Slip is one of my all-time favorite yeah. records across any genre of music. They're in my top three favorite bands of all time, unquestionably. They're like gods. Incredible. So I, you know, I stayed sort of plugged in, but I, I was out of it. And then suddenly I come back in, I find Strife, find Snapcase, take in a few shows, then run into some of the Backbone guys. And I, now I'm saying, hey, if you guys want to do a show again, it could be fun to get back on the microphone. Yeah. So we did it. We, they, somebody at the time threw together a pretty big reunion show <clears throat> in Clinton, Mass., which is where Backbone was sort of born from. And uh, yeah, it was like packed. Like more people came to see us play than <laughs> ever came to us play before. And uh, it felt really good. It just was really fun to be on stage with a microphone jumping around again. I was 24 years old and it just felt great. And then the guitar player Backbone ran into Aaron Dahlbeck at a record store. Aaron Dahlbeck was in Converge, but had started his own personal side project that needed a singer. The guitar player at Backbone, his name's Chris Papecki. He's in the Doom Riders. He's like, has continued to stay involved in Boston music his whole life. Gives him my phone number. He's like, yo, you should call the dart. I know that he had a lot of fun doing the Backbone reunion. He would probably join your straight edge band. Wow. Dahlbeck called me up on the phone. Ugh. God. And then, all right, then I know you had, so I spoke to Zach, you had a, a, a guitarist before Zach, but very short-lived, maybe a guy who was practicing a little bit. Well, no, I mean, it was Dahlbeck was the guitar player. We didn't have a bass player when the band started, but Kurt, the second guitar player, just like Dahlbeck, just basically guilted him into, you know, will you play shows until we find our own guy? Right. Kurt, you know, he was young, you know, he didn't have all the projects he has going on now. So he was like, yeah, I'll do what I can. I can't promise anything. But he played the first, I would say, five or six Bane shows on guitar. You could tell it wasn't his thing, that he was just like just doing this because he told his friend he would do it. But as soon as he could segue out of it, right, he did. And yeah, Zach was a kid who had been dancing and singing along at every single Bane show. Like we played five shows and Zach and his small crew of friends had been at every one. And our bass player was very good friends with Zach. 
at the time our bass player's name was Pete and he was like, yeah, he plays guitar and he has really cool stage presence. He goes crazy. Maybe he would want to do it. There so you go. Him and he said, yes, you know, I'll try. Yeah, it's the 20-year um, fill-in guy. Yeah, 20-year fill-in. <laughs> I still remember him at the first practice. I still have this vivid image of him like playing the songs and every time he would mess up a little, he would get so mad. He would be so mad at himself that he had messed the riff up. And I just knew that I could see how much he cared, that he that this meant already this meant something to him. He wanted to keep yeah. yeah, he was passionate yeah. about it. That speaks, you know, it speaks volumes. The band without him, you know, he was the thing. We needed him. Everything sort of explodes off of his energy and the size of that kid's heart. And yeah. Yeah. And he's just so key to the whole thing. Fuck. Fuck. Yeah, I love that. He's my favorite. Love him to death. I can't wait to hear his his Episode. Oh yeah, we 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 get into things. Yeah, we sure get into things. Yeah, he's fascinating because he came in the band. He didn't really even know who Youth of Today was. He had a very sort of spotty relationship with hardcore. He was much more of a metal kid, which I'm sure he told you. Yes. He like he knew who Judge was. He knew who Killing Time was, but he couldn't really talk to you. No, about but those were, if I if I remember correctly, those were like the two bands that. Like, were his turning point. Those were the ones that bled through, but he did not know the history. Like, he couldn't tell you who straight ahead was, which would blow my fucking mind. Right. (laughs) I just couldn't understand it, but came to love that about him and that, that, you know, he brought this very unique perspective that was so different than my perspective or even Dahlbeck's perspective. You know, we had our different roads getting into music, and his was very much fueled by metal, by fucking metal. And, like, putting on a show, like the importance of getting up there and being larger than life on stage, things that didn't resonate to me at right. all. Very, very important to him. Yeah, that's that metal world. Sure. Yeah. Dime bag and all that stuff. Yeah, it's stage presence. Dude, I didn't care about that stuff, Al. He, Bane and being in the van with Zach and Bobby taught me to love Pantera, taught me to understand that Pantera is a, is a great band. Yeah, man. I had to figure that out on my so Backbone played with Pantera. Backbone played... Opened for Pantera at, in in Boston on the Cowboys from Hell tour. Wow! They were doofy. I wasn't impressed at all. He, <laughs> he had the weird long hair and went swinging his hair around, and I just thought, this is not my world. I don't know what this is. Right. <laughs> and then they blew up, and he went through his sort of Henry Rollins phase, where he was, you know, very much like a hard dude. And I was just like, yo, I saw you a few years ago. This isn't checking out for me, dude. Yeah, it's, it's not checking out. But it's unstuck. Tattoo across his stomach, yeah. So it wasn't for me, but I was wrong. Like, I yeah. get into Bane, and we do endless tours where that's all I'm hearing in the van, and eventually I had to be like, yo, this is sick. Like, yeah. this is incredible music. To hear that they were a one-guitar band, that they didn't use distortion, it was just like, wow. This is yeah. I needed um, Zach and Bobby to sort of teach me a little bit about some of the metal bands that I had to turn my nose up at when I was a kid. Yeah. I loved some metal when I was when I was a teenager in that spot, when I was in aggressive hate and half of the band was metal guys and I would read their magazines. I was into like Bathory and Celtic Frost in 85, 86. Like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Bathory, bro. Me too. I mean, me too. It's just kind of cheesy now because it's such like a hipster thing, but like I yeah. deeply loved that band. That band spoke to me in 86 and 87. Yeah. When I heard Megadeth, I was like, this isn't hard. This isn't fast. What are you talking about? Right. Have you never heard fucking Morbid Tales? 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Blood, fire, death, bathroom. Oh. You ever hear that oh. thing? That's like a whole other level of hard. Whole other level. Yeah, this guy's talking about, I don't know, fucking you know, Dave Mustaine, whatever he's talking about. It's not It's not hard. Yeah. You know, rain and blood hits and like death angels, ultra violence hits. And I just, it, it was so hard and so fast that the other stuff I couldn't really pay attention to. I just, yeah, like, I get it. I completely get it. It's fucking funny. Calico, they had fucking seven minute long songs. I can't, how am I going to sit to that? I can listen to one side of Rain and Blood in seven minutes. Exactly. <laughs> but those guys gave me an education for sure. Being in Bain, you know, getting to a place where I opened my mind up a little and wanted to know the things that were important to them. A lot of that stuff that I'd missed out on as a kid. Yeah. Finally started to dawn on me. We'd listen to Ride the Lightning and I would just be like, this is fucking insane. This dude, Fight Fire with Fire is a hard song, dude. No, it it's fucking undeniable. Yeah. Undeniable. Probably my favorite Metallica song ever is Fight Fire with Fire. Oh God, it's so it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So now you guys finally, are you guys, how long after you guys record? Like, well, you guys put out what? Two demos before? One demo. Put out one, one demo. demo in the winter. Of, in the winter of 95, we record the demo. We still don't have a bass player. We still don't have a second guitar player. We had we had these five songs, and Dahlbeck just wanted to get it out. He was just so excited. He knew how to do it to get into the studio to make a demo. He sort of knew the steps, and I didn't really know the steps. None of my bands had even gotten past that demo step. I didn't know from even doing a weekend. I didn't know how to do that stuff. Dahlbeck was in Converge now, so he understands the way of the world, and he's just not about wasting time. These songs are done. The lyrics are done. We're going to go, we're going to have our friend play bass. We'll have, you know, our friend who was like on house arrest, play second guitar. We're just going to figure this out and uh, put the pieces together after the demo is out, which is exactly what we did. And then by early 96, we played a couple shows. And then, yeah, it was like we had two new songs, bam, back into the studio to record the first seven inch. And then every year we, we released a, Seven inch. Dahlbeck was very busy with Converge. At this time, Bane was very much a side project. Right. Even getting to Boston to play a show was a pretty big deal. We were mostly just playing shows around Worcester, and we had a lot of friends who really cared about the band, so we were doing fine, but um, didn't have any aspirations yet. We didn't know what it could be. Right. We put out seven inches when we could, play shows. All our friends would be there and go crazy and sing along, and it seemed enough for us. Yeah. Until 98 when, uh, yeah, late 97, early 98, when we sort of became pretty good friends with the 10-yard fight guys, they were kind of, things were happening for them much more quickly than us. They were doing weekends. They had a record label and um, they just kind of took us under their wing. They were like, no, your band is good. It doesn't matter that you don't have a band. We'll come pick you up. You'll come do weekends with us. So they were the ones, they would come. They'd come pick me up outside my door, man. Get in the van, and they would take us out, and we did a couple weekends with them, and that put the hook in our mouth. That like, whoa, this is pretty fucking sick. Seeing kids in New Jersey, fucking Hagerstown, Maryland, that know our songs, that was pretty infectious. Yeah. And then he said they would put out the three seven inches as a collection, as a holding this moment collection, and if we did that, we could go on tour. They put us on the road with Saves the Day in the summer of '98. And then suddenly we saw what it could be. We saw how you could take this a little further than just playing shows in Whistler. Yeah. We loved it. And uh, yeah, 
Thalbeck started making more time for it. And I think that, I think at that time, either they're about to, or they had already finished college, but suddenly Pete and Zach were a little more available to, to do things, to, to, to do weekends, do a week here and there. We would fly out for a while. We had a tradition where we'd fly to California and do two weeks in the winter. Every winter we'd get the fuck out of there and go fly out there, play Cali. No, no, we had the hook in our mouth by 98, 99. Finally, we put out our first LP and, uh, yeah. It all comes down to this. Yep, it all comes down to this, 99. Yeah, so it was Equal Vision Records the whole way through, from beginning to end, right? Well, yeah, once, yeah, once Holding This Moment came out, that was it. Yeah. In the end, we were able to do some seven inches with smaller labels and stuff. They kind of let us do some things with friends who we loved and wanted to work with. We had a buddy in Tokyo at a label. Our buddy Mateo and from Brazil had a label. Sam Triple D was a personal friend who I really wanted to work with their label. And EVR was cool about letting us do those later seven inches with those. But yeah. the big stuff was all EVR. Yeah. Even when there was conversations about leaving, yeah. it just didn't make sense. We just fit there. They were good to us. Yeah. It wasn't complicated. Yeah, yeah you know, the stories of, of hardcore bands that were on labels that they didn't like, that they were constantly at war with, that were disappointed with this thing and that thing, don't ever sign with this label, and it just never really checked out with us. We liked our label. We could call Steve, the label guy, on the phone. If we had a van problem, if we needed some help, yeah. it just, that was, there was a loyalty that was built there early on that we just stayed with. Yeah. our friend as well as our label mate. And he was a hardcore guy. He used to roadie for youth today. So for me, I knew that he understood what the band meant to me. He came up through very similar channels. The bands that he loved were the bands that I loved. So I felt very safe under his wing. Yeah. I personally, as a hardcore kid, felt like he gets it. Yeah. So now what was the first time you guys went out? Like, what was it? What was it? I know that you guys went pretty early. But it must have been like that holy shit, how did I get here type moment when you when you first going out to like Europe. You know? So California was the first holy shit moment for sure. Doing that all night drive. Like you know what actually wasn't California, it was Portland, Oregon, was like waking up and being at the Pacific Ocean, which as I was saying, and I'm twenty five I'm twenty eight now, twenty-seven, I guess I'm twenty-seven then. So I'm not a kid anymore. And I still had never been anywhere further than Virginia. Maybe wow. at that time I'd not. I think Virginia was as far as I'd gone to Michigan with the band, but suddenly I'm on the Pacific Ocean. I'm seeing like things I've never seen before. That was the first holy shit. Like my mom, she passed away before all the Bane stuff happened, but she wouldn't believe where I was standing and I hadn't paid a cent. Like I was I was doing this on the wings of a band that kids were coming off to see and cared about. That was Okay, everything after this is extra credit. Everything that happens after this is yeah, man. This is the most I could have ever asked for to be in the band. I had a like I could hold a physical record in my hand. I had never done that with any of the bands that I drummed in, Backbone, any of that. Never had a record like I I was on a fucking record. Yeah, that was huge. And then it was another, I guess, another year and a half before we came out of that airport in Frankfurt, Germany. So like. Wow. Uh, wow. Just coming out of that with my friends in Europe, about to embark on like a seven and a half week tour and just 
fucking ready for it and excited. And yeah, that was a, that, those two moments. Definitely. I remember coming out of the airport into the fresh air of Frankfurt, Germany, and just, you know, nobody speaking English. And I just know that all I have are these guys around me. We brought two roadies on that tour. They were some of our best friends in the world. And it just felt like, you know, I could die right now and I'll be fine. I knew I was, I was going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. That was 2000. The first time we went to Europe and we, but hardly slept. We did everything. I could tell, I'm sure Zach told you some, I could tell you stories for three hours just coming from that tour, how we didn't sleep. We didn't yeah. say no to any opportunity. We just right. wanted to see everything go everywhere. We had endless energy. Yeah. It was, it was Zach, Zach told me towards the end of his episode, he was like, we have to do another part. Cause I think we went like an hour and 40 minutes or something like that. And he's like, I didn't even tell any stories. Like as far as like crazy stories, he's like, that could be hours and hours. I mean, I'm sure you guys have a 20. You got robbed, man. You got robbed. Cause when people ask me, Oh, what are the best tour stories? All I want is Zach right next to me. Cause right. he's, best, he's the best storyteller. He'll tell a story to a room full of people that haven't heard it before that I've heard. 20 times and i will be so excited to hear right. nobody can recount a crazy bane incident better than him i always feel so lost and are like oh do you have any good tour stories like i can't tell them like zach tells them you need to you need that <laughs> well, well i'm gonna once everything you know maybe after this whole quarantine everything goes back to whatever normal is going to be then we'll we'll get together. We'll do a face to face, and we'll oh, just talk you all kinds of crazy. Bobby and me in a room telling old stories. You'll die. They're the best. I would love to have that opportunity, dude. That would be fucking great. How hard do you think it'll be, man? It's really not as hard. No. All right. Well. Well, now we're all in touch, so yeah. that would be fucking. That would be really fucking cool. Like a little update on this whole series thing, yeah. I guess. Maybe yeah, we'll have, in yeah. 2000 going to Europe and feeling like just sort of getting an understanding of how far you can really take this. We were after that we were addicted. We were just obsessed. Dahlbeck isn't in Converge anymore. His blood comes out. That record hits really, really hard. People really connect with it. The shows just get kicked up a couple levels. And yeah, we were all, you know, like we hadn't responsibilities hadn't started to come down and sort of distract us quite yet. There was a couple of years there where we were just fucking going for it, where we loved it to death, yeah. where everything else was a side project. Right. Even relationships. I remember having like, oh, this is so shitty to say, but having proud conversations with girlfriends to let them know that Bane comes first, that I will always leave. I will always get in the van. Right. And again, it seemed at the time like it was this huge sprawling window of time, but really it's just a couple of years there before Zach gets married, you know, and then yeah. he's the band and Bobby comes in and shortly after that, he's married. He has a kid. Like things start to get serious there. Yeah. Around, two, around 2004, 2005. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, I've, I've said this, I don't know. I think it was on Zach's or maybe even James's that, Whoever's listening to this might hear a couple of the same stories, obviously, because I'm speaking to each member at a different time. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, whatever. Um, but I, I'll admit, like, I had heard of you guys, but the first time, what, what got me hooked was I, I had heard the, 
the the cover of We Stand Alone that you guys did for the Sick of It All comp. Yeah. Right? Because Sick of It All is like my favorite band ever for the most part. For the yeah. most part. Gun to my head, maybe. But so I was like, all right. The, the awesome cover. And then I saw you guys live for the first time. And I'll pat myself on the back because I made the flyer for it as well. Okay. It, it was um, when you guys opened for Sick of It All in 2009 at the Gramercy in New York City. It was... Wow, okay. It was Inhuman, a band called Capital. You guys... Oh, yeah. I, that was in Brooklyn. That was in the city. That was at the Gramercy Theater in Manhattan. God, the, bl- the Blender Theater at the Gramercy. No, I remember the show now. I guess I'll, I'll send you the flyer. Yeah, yeah. So that was... And then I had heard you guys, but when I saw you guys live... I was like, holy shit. And I saw you and the way you were. And I'm like, and from that, and I, 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 I swear, I swear on this from that point on, if I missed two shows that you guys played, whether it was in Brooklyn, Manhattan or Jersey, it would be a lot from then until the final show. If I missed two shows, it would be a lot. Every time you guys played, I was there. I didn't know that. Yeah, every time, whether it was Game Changer World, Life of Death Tour, different, different, yeah, all that stuff. I was there for all of that. And, um, and then I'll tell the story again. It was the, your, your final, one of, one of your shows got cut short for me because I literally, it sounds so crazy and dramatic, but I literally almost broke my back. I thought I broke my back. Yep. It, was, it was at Webster Hall. It was your final New York show. Oh, wow. Yeah. So manipu- I think Manipulate opened up that show. Um, I don't remember. And then I remember Maximum Penalty. And then you guys. And I was, just, I, was, I was just standing in the back for the most part because I wanted to get all my shit off for you guys. Right. So I had my phone in my, in, my, in my pocket. And I was there alone. I usually have my girl there, so I'll give her like my money or my phone and stuff like that so I don't lose nothing. So I take my phone. I go up onto the side of the stage, and I tuck it behind like an amp or a cabinet or something. So... It's there. I know no one's going to take my shit. So, and you guys, you guys never stayed still, which was one of the huge things why you guys are such a great band. You guys are just so much energy. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, stage left, so Dahlbeck is going nuts with his youth crew jumps, and then there's, there's James, and you're all over, and there's wires everywhere. So now I have it in my head, and there's certain parts of a certain song that I have to get up and navigate, not smash into you guys, and I don't want to trip on the stage and then flip into the, you know, fl- you know the whole deal, what goes into it, especially with you guys. So I'm like bobbing and weaving. I don't want to get in your way. So, and I flip over, and it was during Swan Song. It was the fourth song that you played that night, Swan Song. So I flip into the crowd, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting my footing, and I'm about to go back onto the ground, and as I look up, and there's somebody like a foot away from me lands on top of me, so it, it was nobody's fault. It comes with the territory. So he fell on top of me, and then a hole opened up, and my back hit the floor oh. and he hit it on top of me. So as soon as that happened, I've gotten hurt so many times at Holocaust shows, whatever. But when, it, when that happened, I couldn't get up for a minute. And I was like, fuck. And it felt like I got stabbed with like an ice pick. And I'm like, fuck, man. So I get up real slow. And it wasn't something I knew. It was something I just couldn't shake off. I just knew. It was, just, it was like that. So I'm like, fuck. So I'm like slow. And I was so mad because like, it was your last fucking New York show. I'm like, this sucks. So I'm fucking shuffling out. Yeah. And I called my girl who was in Brooklyn with her son in the movies. 
And she came to the city. She grabbed me. I had to go to the hospital. I'm like, yeah, yo, it was crazy. I took off of work for like a week. I, yeah, I was fucked up. So it was like my spine. They went to chiropractor, x-rays, everything. At, fir at, first, the, at first, my chiropractor, thought, well, actually, in the emergency room, they thought that I actually fractured my hip, but it wasn't. And, and there was, I went to my chiropractor. I got out of there. I went to the chiropractor a couple of days later. And then he sent me for an MRI and an x-ray. And it turns out that it was like the bottom, like four pieces of like my spine were bent at a, like a 35 degree angle. And it was like into like my sciatic nerve and my whole muscle was just contracted. It was bad, dude. But then I was like, you know what? It's nobody's fault. I'm not mad at anybody. Shit happens. It sucks. Oh, that I miss, it sucks most. And I miss most of the show. But then it was a weird time where, like, for a month, there was, like, no shows that were really happening for some reason. Or it was something that I really didn't care about. And then I was like, I don't give a shit. But that final Bane show, I got to go back and redeem myself. Yeah. And damn right, I did. So, and, and it was like, and I told Zach this also. It's like, gun to my head. If I was to, I can't really choose. But if you put a gun to my head. I would say that Ali Frazier is like my favorite Bane song. Thank you. For whatever reason. So, and, and for several shows, it became my own stupid personal goal, I don't know why, to get up onto the stage, steal Zach's mic, and sing the final chorus. And I did that, I don't know how many times. So, at the final show, I made it up there, and that's what I did. And I was like, that was redemption for my broken back, missing that show, final show, Favorite verse, say favorite song. I got to do it. I did it. Pass on the back for me. But yeah, man. But yeah, like I said, that was the only show that was cut short for me. But I think I missed maybe two shows for whatever reason, whether it was work or I had my daughter or something. But since that 2009 show, I haven't missed one of you guys' shows other than like maybe two. Sure. I mean, yeah. a lot. I'm yeah, sorry. Man. I always hate hearing people getting hurt at the end shows. It breaks my heart. But like you said... Nobody's no one's fault. Times my body's all destroyed because of yeah, things. man. It wasn't like it was a fight. It comes with dancing. It, it it comes with the territory. So, you know, whatever. It's nobody's fault, and I'm over it. It's all good. I wasn't mad at the time. I was just more mad that I'm missing the show. That was that was what I was pissed off about. I don't want to rub it in, but that was a good one. That was that. Was, I know it was a good one, man. I know <laughs> they're all good ones. That was one of the. That was one of the ones that I did not want to end. Yeah, it was the final New York show, man. I was like, final show of our final tour. Like that was the end of our last tour. That was your, yeah, that was your because you did two nights at at the at the Worcester Palladium, but before well, that, that was your last show. Months later, this is this is we did the, the full U.S. final farewell U.S. tour. We do two nights in Philly. Yeah. Then I wake up in the morning and drive into the city, feeling real fucking crazy. That, yeah. I mean, I just left the last hotel that I may ever stay at for the band to go play the final show in a city that has legendary love for Bane. And is, you know, I know it's going to be a special night is I was a wreck of emotion. I was just sure. a wreck. There's a lot of, there's a lot of that tour that I don't remember that I like, just can't really remember details of, but that day going down to the park, watching the, Chess hustlers play chess. Backgammon players watching kids skateboarding, like going and grab pizza. I remember that day very vividly, and the show was just it was a good one. 
It was. It was. You got cut off for me, but that's eh, all right. Eh, what are you gonna do? I mean, it sounds like you saw a bunch of them for sure. Oh, I saw a ton of them, dude. I saw a ton of them, and yeah. um, and that's what like, I'll say it again. I I don't remember who I told, but like you guys, and I'm not blowing smoke because I, I'm. This is my story, and I'm sticking to it. It was like you know, I grew up. You know, with like my all the you know the New York bands, obviously it's like the sick of it all, Agnostic Front and Leeway and the Chromags and Killing Time and all those bands. Of course, like I have so much love for those bands. Yeah. And but there was something about you guys that, you know, that I, you get jaded. I don't know. I listen to the same like fifty hardcore records. You know what I mean? And it's like there was something. I don't know if it's all your. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. It's like like how fast it is or your, your lyrics. I'm a huge lyrics guy and there's something so much more and so much different about Bane that quickly, especially after I saw you guys live, you guys quickly became one of the bands in that small pile that are more special to me for, for a number of reasons. And then there's so many bands in the huge pile, which like, Okay, yeah, good bands, blah, 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 blah. But then there's that smaller section that later on in life where it was, it was hard to impress me with certain music and hardcore because I had, I, had, I had felt like it's all been done. So much of it has been done. It's like, okay, I, I heard this before. I kind of heard a different band, but I kind of heard this. But there was something about your band that quickly, immediately put you guys right here. And I think that says a lot because... There's nobody to me that sounded like you and 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 what you guys talk about, dude. You you have like deep lyrics and shit. Like like it's not cookie cutter nonsense. Like you read your shit and like your like your sports references and shit like that. Like the whole and I'll throw out like Ali Frazier. It's about giving your all. It's like you watch that Ali Frazier fight. What they do, you know what I mean? They yeah. gave every single bit of everything they had to accomplish something. Yeah especially Frazier, who had been, like, punked out publicly by this guy. Yeah. And it, in, the, in the media by this guy to get in there and do what he did. Yeah. And it's like, all right, it's a, all right, the, the, the name of the song is, is, is a boxing match, but there's so much, it's, the song is so much more about boxing. It's really, it's, it's insane. It's just, yeah. there's yeah. a lot of things like that. You know, even I think even James had mentioned like his favorite song was Annie Up. There's like card references and like stuff like that, but it's it's not about a, the song's not about a card game per se either. There's so much I know this I know that it's just, there's there's so many layers, and I think that's what's also it it takes thought. It's not the cookie cutter. You stab me in the back, uh, kick down the door. You know, but it's not. You know, it's there's thought behind it. So that's what kind of, and like I said, I'm a, I'm a lyrics person. So that's what puts you guys up here. I mean, lots of me. I it was, it was a lot of luck there in that thing starts when I'm in my mid twenties. Right. And I'm not just a kid who just that doesn't understand, you know, I had read a lot, you know, had, had a very thorough film education sort of, yeah, I just was like, hungry for knowledge all through my early 20s and like Embracer were my favorite lyrics you know those were very well thought out very impassioned honest lyrics so yeah like sort of the right place right time right age to be able to start writing hardcore lyrics as a little bit more of an adult really. yeah and even like and even like from from like 
the beginning stuff, like, to, you know, the first seven inch stuff from both guns blazing and in pieces and all that stuff. And then it's, it, it's been consistent, which is also a very rare thing. It's just consistent all the way up to your final record. It's like, you know, it's like, like there's, there was a couple of people that, that found out that I'm doing this whole series who weren't really hip to who Bane was. They're like, all right, like send me a record. I'm like, start anywhere. They're like, all right, well, what do you recommend? So, of course, I right, well, well, here you go. Like, here's Ollie Frazier. Like, okay, hold on. Well, I have them on my Spotify. I'm like, all right, well, just go through it, dude. It's like, because you'll find something everywhere in there, you know? Thank you. So, I mean, and I'm not, I feel like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but, you know, because, you know, but it's just, it's just, it's just a fact. It's anybody, any of my friends who know, like, you know, I've said this to a million people before. So, thank you. you know, yeah, man. And, and I needed to, I mean, I was on my computer waiting for that 12 o'clock in the afternoon to hit and it was, so I could press fucking hit so I can get that final, you know, that final show ticket. Yeah. Because that shit sold out. I, I didn't go the Friday night. I went that Saturday. I went on the, the, fi- the actual final show. And it sold out in like three minutes of some crazy shit. That was an uncomfortable time for me, being in the middle of a strange frenzy like that that wasn't wasn't normal, wasn't a part of what Bane was about or had ever really experienced. It was very strange. Was it? Yeah, I didn't like it. You know, I think I like the thought of hardcore shows being $7 and a place holds 200 kids and you rock up and show up at the doors. You know, it was very strange. I didn't care. I don't even remember how much it cost. I can care less about how much it cost, but I knew that it was going to sell out fast. So I had my whole stream up. Like we didn't know. I, we understood what was happening, but it was just very surreal. Was just was very bizarre for me. Yeah, man. So how how was your paint paint the picture if you can of 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 what that final show was like for you, man? Because I remember I was I was baffled when you in like the middle of it, you were like. I'll paraphrase what you said. You said something to the effect of, so how would any, everybody feel if we're only halfway done with our set? And you guys were like an hour in. And I was just like, holy shit. And yeah, man, it was, it was one of the greatest shows I've ever been to because the energy and the crowd, unbelievable. Um, Even though it was sad and I still don't like talking about it, but. Yeah, it's hard for me too. I don't remember a lot. Uh, I know that we played a very, very long set. Um, we got together in the side room and like, usually I, I wrote the set list. That was my job. I banged out the set list, tried to keep it different night to night. Always tried to throw a few surprises in there. Didn't open with the same thing. Didn't end with the same thing. You saw us a bunch of times. I'm sure you know that. Yeah. But in this one, it was important that let's get, you know, let's all make this, let's all make this set list. And at that, that day, all of us sort of encompassed people that used to be in Bain, people that were close to Bain. So we get in this side room, and there's a lot of opinions floating around about songs that we have to play. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, we're at 16 songs here. Usually Bain would play 12 songs or something. Right. And then Pete Chilton, who he wasn't the bass player in Bain, but he had started as the bass player in Bain and yes. had done all of our graphics and was basically a member of Bane. He played on Don't Wait Up because we didn't have the bass player at the time. Yeah. He just says, play everything. And I was like, 
that's scary. We can't, we're not going to play everything, man. <laughs> like, no, play everything. Like, play every fucking song that you want to play. And, like, Bobby's son, his, like, little kid, Jared, is like, you got to play this one. And so we write it down. And I just sort of trusted that it wouldn't be too much. When I think back in the day, I feel a little bit embarrassed when people tell me, yo, you guys are on for two hours. That seems absurd. It seems very self-obsessed to be up there for that long. But, it's not self-obsessed. Maybe that's you, but I don't. I, as an outsider looking and knowing that that's your final show, and you're in Worcester, and you're in the Palladium, and it's, and it's the last one. I hope that was people's experience. Like, this is it. Give yeah. us one more. But I can say that for me, I can't speak for anyone else. But for me, this is fucking great, man. That makes me happy. I don't remember much about it. I'm like. Not a big go back and watch stuff guy. I don't watch old Bane videos. I'm sort of indifferent on the whole idea of, I don't know if I'll watch it. I'm afraid of that I wasn't very articulate between songs. I know that there were people that I wish that I had thanked who I didn't mention. I was white knuckling at that day. From the moment I came out to like put the set list on, I was fighting for dear life not to just break down. And I don't mean like, a few tears, like I was going to have an emotional breakdown. The closer that Bane got to breaking up, the more I realized I am not ready for this. I do not want to do this. There was a lot of why the fuck have we decided to do this? And we'd said a lot of things. We had signed a lot of checks on this is it. This is our final this. This is our final that. The whole vibe to don't wait up was a, a statement of like, we are letting go of this. So there was no turning back. Nobody ever tried to slam the brakes. We were just rushing towards a moment that we couldn't stop. And we dragged it out. Like we did two years of saying goodbye, two fucking years. They went by in a blink of an eye, but here we are on the day where we have arrived at that moment that I wasn't ready for. I had never quite been able to accurately envision I knew it was going to be big. It was big in a sense that everybody was there, that everywhere I turned around, there was somebody whom I loved, who I had a very personal experience with, I had toured with. And um, <clears throat> I'm an emotional guy. I'm a nostalgic guy. I, I, you know, Sometimes it's not easy for me to hold it together. And this was rough, coming through that crowd, putting the set list up there, looking at Bobby, behind the drums and knowing that this is it. I, that whole set is, was me struggling to just have some energy, sing hard, move around, and don't, don't fall apart. Because yeah. if I start thinking too much about how sad this is, I might end up on the floor. Right. I remember having conversations with people saying, when that show ends, I may just beeline it out those double metal doors and disappear into the night. I wasn't sure I would be able to stay there and do the goodbye thing. You know, the whole final tour was a lot of hanging out on stage afterwards, thanking kids, hearing what the band had meant to them, hugging them. And night after night after night, it becomes very taxing, comes, becomes a bit exhausting. It's absurd to say that now because I would give anything to have that experience again. But for the final show, I just didn't know I would be able to handle it. I didn't know if I could handle that many people that were sort of sad and that I couldn't save them and I couldn't say anything. I, I'm sad. There was a part of me that thought my fight or flight might actually take over 
and that I'm going to allow myself that, that I've done it all. I made it, came, played the show that I was horrified to play. If I have to run, I'm going to run. And I didn't run. It was fine. I stayed on that stage. We all hung out for an hour, it feels like, just saying goodbye and taking photos. And it was, it was great. I made it. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I was white knuckling it that entire day like I was on a fucking plane that was going down. Like I was barely, hang on, I'm afraid to watch that video because I don't remember how I was that day. I mean, I, I'm imagining I just come across very earnest and very fragile and honest, which is exactly how I felt. But yeah. I don't know if I can revisit it. When people are all in the uproar, oh, we want to see the show, we want to see the show, I think that thing was two hours long. Hardcore Ben shouldn't play for more than fucking 40 minutes. Right. And I don't remember a word that I said. I think I might have been like shaking the whole time. So yeah, I'm it's, not in a big rush. Yeah, it's, it's a couple of like, there's several like really bad from a distance cell phone videos of clips here and there. There's one decent clip that got like 50 something thousand views of just calling hours from that night um, that's on YouTube. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's like one, it's like last song, last show, and it was Swan Song, but it's taken from like a bad cell phone from like far away. It's, it sounds shitty. It's just a phone. Yeah. But um, there's really not much out there. And that's when I, I had spoken to Zach about, about the, um, you know, Sonny Hate 5-6 and his, you know, the final show that's not released and why and all that. And he got into the reasons why, because it coincided basically with a handshake with the documentary. That's, so about, now, that's basically about it. I mean, we made a yeah. deal with them, and we certainly did not expect this to be a four or five year endeavor where there would be this gap. We just thought that a doc would come out and everything would happen right. in a more normal timeline. And, you know, I, I just don't care. Like, it's just not a crusade that I care about. I don't revisit that stuff. I don't get anything out of watching old Bane shows. Right. Did you watch the doc? You watched the documentary, though, didn't you? I did. I watched the documentary on my birthday last summer. It's tough to watch, I, for sure. I, 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 yeah, if Zach said he, Zach was. He said he was a wreck watching it. Yeah, I was crying. I was, I, yeah, it was tough to watch. It was a lot of years later, a yeah. lot of sort of missing it and sort of you know. Yeah. Wasn't easy. Yeah, yeah. He said, yeah, he he had said at the end that he kind of felt like it leaves like this feeling of a band that might have called it quits too early. Yeah. I mean, at the time I would have argued that I would have argued against that, but now in this sort of four year rear view that I have, there's a lot of things I wish that we had done differently. If you want to get into that, we can get way, way into that, but there's just a lot of things that I wish had played out. Dude, the floor is yours, man. I got nowhere to be. If you want to speak about whatever you want to speak about, you can. But I will ask you this one question. And I have to ask it, even though it's the, the hacky, lame, obvious elephant in the room question. Are you ever going to play again? <laughs> I've gotten, I won't tell you what it is. You're just going to have to listen. <laughs> But I've gotten two other answers from obviously the two other guys that I did this with. I mean, those are the guys that there was a little moment there where we were kind of poking at the conversation where it just felt right before this sort of kicked off. 
Bound and Fury had reached out to see if we wanted to come and do it. Um, <laughs> funny for me to talk about because I'm not even really sure where my own mental state is at it. I go so wildly right. the ups and downs and the things that we said and the, and the things that will be said. Right. It's just sort of difficult for me trying to find the right voice to hold on to here. Right. But, um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't. I just don't really know the answer. I and it feels to me like some of the guys are sort of less enthused about the idea than others, and that it's just never going to work because I'm going to need to be dragged into this. I'm going to need everyone to be fully on board. There's like Pete, the dude who was in the band in the beginning. He has been a part of this sort of early conversation where he's like. Fuck what anyone thinks. Fuck what anyone is going to talk shit about on the internet. Like, if this feels right for you, this is going to make you happy. What else is more important? And then right before this coronavirus thing, I went to see Dahlbeck's new band, Be Well, play with, play with Hot Water Music. Singer Be Well is Battery, Brian McTiernan. Yes. Um, he recorded all the early Bane stuff. Very close, personal friend not just of mine, but of the band. He has a personal relationship with this band. And he could just sort of see both by being in a band with Dahlbeck, and I could just think he could just see it deeply in my eyes that I might have needed to hear that it doesn't matter what anyone will say, that you said you were breaking up and you're coming back, blah, blah, blah. He put some seeds into my head that I was wrestling with in the two weeks before the world got shut down. And there was a moment where we were just kind of joking about it. And I was curious to see what their voices would be because you, I think that I've gotten into a point where I realized that you don't want to, you don't want to live with your regrets for too long. You don't want to make these very, very stubborn choices based on outside energies if the thing that would make you the most happy would just be to get into a room with those guys again and play songs. If it's the thing that I want more than anything else, if it's like I am tormented with nightmares. I have Bane dreams all of the time that we're together. All of the time. We're never playing music together, but we're getting ready to, or we're backstage or, you know, some crazy. I had one last week. We were setting up the merch in a plaza in Rome, like at, at these big statues, we were, setting up the merch outside because the show was so packed. It's like, oh, my I, God. I had dreams all of the time. And then I started this new project, Antagonize, which was a lot of fun, and it's been which cool. Is, which, is, which is fucking great, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. That's Dude, nice. it's fucking hot. I fucking I love it. The three releases, the, the demo, the promo, and Slip Death, the record, fucking great. Thank you. It didn't, feel like it, took, it didn't feel like it really hit with kids in a way that I was kind of hoping that it would. And I have antagonizes in a rough spot where it gets measured up to this other beast of a band that I was. I, I get that level of commitment and being goal oriented and go, go, go. And I knew when antagonize started that this is going to be a small thing. These guys are in other bands. These guys are young and they're, they're not tour hungry the way that we were. They just seem to be more comfortable in their jobs and in their lives. And that's why Sam is in the band. He runs a label. He's very busy with Triple B stuff. So I came into it with an understanding that ah, 
He says, you got to be more like a fling, you know? Right. But once we started playing shows, doing weekends, once we write a record, I just couldn't help it. I just want to take it to where I know it can go. I want to get out there. I want to struggle. And I, you know, the only roadmap that I know is the Bane road, roadmap. I don't know from this new way of band camp and creating hype online where you don't have to go and tour and you can just play the festivals and be a relevant band. I don't, that's not who I am. I'm getting yeah. the van and go out there and fucking play. Yeah, old, your old school road dog. Play yeah. to 12 kids and then go back to play to 40 kids and then go back to play to 100. I know that that works. I know that that, that roadmap works if right. you're a good band. If the kids in the crowd feel connected to you, I, I felt like I could see how this could work. But it wasn't going to work that way because Antagonize just wasn't designed to do that. We were right. just a side band. The guitar player, the brainchild of Antagonize, Jake, He's got 26 different projects going on. He loves all of his bands. He plays in a black metal band. He sings in a band. He just started like a Sam Hain worship band. He's got so much stuff going on. Antagonize is just one thing. Right. For me, Antagonize was like my first affair after a 20-year marriage. I loved right. it. Yeah. Perfect analogy. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. And it, it was difficult for me because I kept weighing it against how I had done it before, what I knew being in a young band that had their first LP out. Antagonize dropped the LP and we didn't play a show until August. We dropped it in April. We didn't play until August. It just none of this checked out for me. It didn't right. make any sense. So yeah, so the conversation for a brief little window, it shifted to if it's the thing I want more than anything else. And I still love it and I still feel young and like I can get up there and be on stage and still feel very relevant. Like, am I torturing myself? Am I making even a bigger mistake than I made previous, which was breaking up the band? Right. Is it an even bigger mistake to just sort of stubbornly say, we put these words out there. People flew here from fucking Germany because they believe this is Bane's last show. You yeah. can't go back on that. Right. You know, I have heart do it, and it just didn't feel quite right to me. It just didn't feel like it was something that I could follow that blueprint and just be like, ah, uh, we're, we're back. Right. Here's the thing. Our friend Stu, also a bass player in band, he got sick. He, had, he was diagnosed with cancer last year. He's got two kids, and there was some talk about we do whatever we need to do to raise money for him. Stu has a lot of connections in the music industry. He tour managed Dropkick Murphys. He tour managed Mighty Mighty Boston's. So the sort of machines that can come together to help him are bigger than anything Bane could ever conceive of. But we would love to have done our part. And he said, I don't need money right now. Everything is fine. You know, I'm going to have, I'm going to be taken care of with insurance, but there may come a time where we all need to, be back on stage together and we all need to do the thing that we do best which is sort of get you guys on stage and cry and this was a incredibly profound moment in my life that i'll do anything for Stu. i don't care what anybody on the internet says about being together if it's to raise money for Stu and his kids i love Stu with all of my heart and it's not necessarily about the band really it's bigger than the band there was a much more personal sort of deviant part of me that said well, you know if bane plays one show if we go back on it once then all bets are off like right. we play one show then that's it i'll play 100 shows and give all the money to Stu. i just want to be 
on stage with Zach and Dahlback again. I want to fucking be in the van with James again. Yeah. I don't know how realistic it is. I don't know how reasonable it is. Everyone has split off and has wildly different lives. Bobby is like, you'll you'll talk to him. I mean, he's like, he's an adult. He's got a, he's got his kids. He's got his career. He, it's you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense on paper. Right. But is is it safe to say that if all the other guys were like, let's do this, you'd be like, fuck it, we're going with with doing it. At this point, especially if right before coronavirus kicked off, when after right after I had that conversation with Brian, I think I could have been swept up into into some sort of a crazy conversation where you know I would have to have my say about how we do it differently, and it's not going to be about money, and I want it to just be like low-key sort of just play shows the way we started out playing shows is there a way we could avoid all of the big hoopla and just sort of like fly in and play in cleveland to a couple hundred kids and come home and then take the bus to take the van down and go play dc you know my mind was starting to spin it in a way where maybe i could live with the backlash yeah you're yeah you're rationalizing it in order for you to sit well with you there was a moment there and then the world went crazy (laughs) <laughs> and now you're thinking, well, let's say this ends, and then doing shows again is just one big party. Like all bets are off, all rules are off, nobody cares. Everyone is just so happy to be in a fucking room together. Yes. It doesn't matter. Like if those guys were being like, dude, let's practice. We got to play one of these shows. Look how crazy this is. Yeah. I. <laughs> That's a good excuse. <laughs> I can't find a way to. I can't find a way to say no to it. I, you know, I go back and think of the things we said. I go back and think of these kids flying from Germany, like going a long distance to say goodbye. You know, we had convinced them that this was it. And I'm a man of my word. Loyalty means a fucking lot to me. It's very difficult for me to turn back on something I said. Lately, there's been this voice in the back of my head that is just like, dude, you made a mistake. You fucked up. You made a mistake. People do not have to go to the grave with their mistakes. Right. And hardcore scene will be forgiving. They will, yeah, will love you. Yeah, right. they'll be naysayers, and those naysayers, they hurt. You know, the people that are going to say, "I fucking knew what I told you. We knew they were going to be back." There's always the naysayer. There's always the naysayer. The I don't know why that hurts me. It's just that's difficult. I'm not. I have thin skin. Right. Thin skin. But now you know what you can say. It's like I, I, I agree a thousand percent, and. Zach and James also basically had the same kind of sentiments about, especially the people that flew over. And we all get that. Like, yes, you said this and, and the money that people spent. But now I'll play devil's advocate and be like, well, the percentage of those people that made all those plans and took those flights and paid whatever they did to go see you, I guarantee that they can be like, you know what? I can see Bane again and they might come back and they're going to come to Europe where I'm living. And you know what? I am fucking good with that because I get the chance to see them live again. So I don't even care about the money that I spent four, five, six, or whatever it may happen 10 years ago, whatever. I don't care about that. Now is now and they're back. And I think that's in that moment that that's all they'll care about. Because I'll tell you, I agree a thousand percent with with everything. But if, and I'm hoping when, 
it ever happens, I will be in the middle of that crowd with a shitty grin on. That's exactly what Brian said. Brian McTiernan, those were, that was his exact sentiment, that the amount of kids that are going to be so happy to be in a room with you again will just drown out those voices by a thousand times. Yeah. I've heard that from other people, but hearing it from him specifically, just someone who I respect and who understands, who understands what the band means to me, and that it's very difficult for me to go back on something I said, like, we didn't only ask for an emotional investment, I mean, or a monetary investment and a time investment. We asked kids to invest their emotions in this idea that we have to get together and be sad now. And some of them did it over and over through those final tours. Yeah. Just there saying goodbye, crying with us, yeah. playing calling hours. You know, this, you know, we cashed in on the emotions of this is goodbye. Yeah. Turning my back on that is, is tough. It's like really, yeah. really hard. But when he said that, when he put this visual of the amount of kids that would just be so happy. And we have friends, like inner, inner circle friends. Like I had a friend hit us up and be like, I will pay for you to just come and play in a desert. I will pay any amount of money. We'll fly out. It'll just be you guys and me. And I'll be happier than anything. Yeah. Hearing that kind of thing, you know, starts to, starts to seep through a little bit. And I, the truth is, is that I would like it more than anything else. I miss it more than I've ever missed anything. The Bane was my family. Bane was the best thing I ever did. It was the most alive that I ever, ever felt. It was the only thing that I ever did that really worked, that really sort of like took off. Yeah. And the, being in a room with kids singing your words at you and wanting to fucking throw their bodies around because of your songs is the most addicting, infectious thing imaginable. And I didn't, I was thinking I would like, let's like go off into the night and sort of start to age and start to have this be a thing that was in the rear view. As soon as I could start antagonizing, be back in the mix and know about these young bands and sort of be back on the front line. I did it. I was horrified that I looked embarrassing that I'm this middle-aged guy now. And I would find myself in sort of groups of kids that I clearly didn't belong. These are young, young fucking kids. And I don't know any of the people they're talking about, the references they're making. And I'm like, God, am I, what am I doing? I don't, I'm not good with chains. I'm not good. I was not able to move on. And then I just have, and we're all still so close. The band guys all still love each other. When we see each other, we're so happy to see each other. Sadly, Stu getting sick has been a catalyst to us getting together a bit more often and seeing each other. Right. And that part has, has been good to, you know, be able to reconnect with Dahlback and yeah. not to be too gloom and doom. Stu's doing pretty well. Chemotherapy has worked. I don't know if anyone's keeping up with that stuff, but yes, I, I've been, and I believe there was, um, the guys in Defeater. Defeater. I was going to say down pressure. I don't know why, but Defeater created a shirt for him. Yeah, such a beautiful gesture. Such a nice, nice gesture of that. Yes. He's doing pretty well. He's fighting this. He's really facing it head on. And um, so things aren't all too gloom and doom there, but it has been a catalyst for us getting together a little bit more often, a little bit more readily. Right. Being in the room with them, you don't want that. You don't want it to end. Just like right. 
we all went and had a dinner one night and it felt very much like a pre-show or a post-Bane show. Like here we are being loud, clanking our glasses around, drinking endless refills. And there was a feeling that this is special and I miss this differently than I miss anything. Yeah. So I don't know, you know, I'm not, I'm not very good. You know, I was in a car recently with Zach. We went down to visit Stu to celebrate him when he finished his first round of chemotherapy. And I was curious if the conversation might come up like, and it didn't, and I'm not very good at, I don't want to put Zach in an awkward situation. I should explain. He's got a lot going on right now with he's touring. He's out there with, big fucking bands I never even heard of. He's like, yeah, me too. I, I see him. I'm like, it's like, like yesterday Holy you were over here. Now you're in California on yeah. a stage with like 50,000. Like, where are you right now? He stayed moving. He, you know, he really, he loved the road. Yeah. Same level, maybe even more than I did. So he, and he's still out there being able to experience that. So we haven't had a heart to heart in a very long time, in a very, very long time about where we're at with it. Yeah. Originally, I tried to get him to join Antagonize, but he was sort of very, very busy and all dealing with personal stuff at that time. But right, we we have we haven't had too many of those sort of emotional conversations, and it's and we have a lot of conversations. He hits me up about movies. He checks in to see how I'm doing. He just had a birthday recently, but it feels like it feels like a conversation that he's not ready to have. I'm curious to know how it went with you guys because. Yeah. We have, we haven't broached it at all. Even in that sort of little text back and forth that happened where we were joking about it and Pete was like, go, if it makes you happy, you do it. Zach didn't have a lot to say. He did not. Mm. I could, you know, I could just feel like, yeah, this is, this is going to take some real massaging for it to work. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, not going to be the massager. I can't do it. I'm <laughs> not sure if it's the right thing. Right. I don't want to go back and like piss on our legacy. We went out with a bang. Would be bad to come limping back and have kids being like, "That's oh, good, but it's not what it was." That would be sad. Right. Four years passed. Like my knees are now four years older than they were. I'm gonna feel differently. But I wish that we had. I wish that we just mapped things out differently. You know, yeah. I can see so clearly now how easily it would have been to just say, "We're gonna call it quits. We're done." But we're gonna come back and go do cool things. If we can raise money for friends, if there's some sort of a benefit that we can play, we want to be in that conversation and right. not write these songs about the torment of having to say goodbye, not use the word final with anything. Just sort of say, yeah, this is it. We're going to call it quits, concentrate on our families and, you know, backing off into our respective corners. But we are leaving the option open to come and do cool things. Because in this, in the four years, we would have went back and played Eperfest. We would have, you know, we oh, would have, sure. we would have been able to do cool things, and we robbed ourselves of that because of my own personal stubbornness, my right. own personal all or nothing bullshit that I'm yeah. deeply saddened by. We got stunted by that because we we could have mapped this out differently, where we don't have to have. Where I don't have to be having Bane dreams. Like Bane is something yeah. that is a full-time band, but every once in a while, what we want to go to California and play five shows, we do it. And people will be there. Right. I still feel great. I still feel very alive and energized. You I have that fire, bro. You still have that fire. I can tell you have that fire. You can't. You you can't. It's not something you can quit. It's always going to be there. 
I wish you would fucking leave, man. But it's, you're right. It's just like, it sounds so cliche to say, oh, I'm going to have this fire always. You think you see it burn out in other people. You see other people just sort of settle into that later stage of their life. I cannot find, I cannot make my way to that. No matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't do it. I, I felt deeply depressed until Antagonize started, till I was able to sort of be replugged into things, writing lyrics again, at shows again. And just like, I guess I'm going to be that fucking weird dude in his 50s who's still coming out. Like, oh, well. I can't wrap my head around it, but I don't know what else to do. I'm going to hide in my room. I'm going to put a gun in my mouth. Like, I'm not going to do that. So all I can do is do is what I know how to do. What yeah. makes me feel happy and alive. Yeah. And yeah, people want to roll their eyes. I mean, when I was 20, I was rolling my eyes at the fucking 40 and 50 year old guys. At the of course. I was yeah. upset by their presence. I get it. I completely have every right to feel very protective of this, but it's, it's not all I know. It's who, it's literally who I am. This is, right. this is who I am. Absolutely. I don't know what else to do. I'm sorry uh, to get too dark or too down. A, too no, dark. it's not, man. Listen, everyone, you know, I, I think that everybody who knows that I'm doing this whole series with you guys, I mean, obviously it, it's for me personally, for selfish reasons, like I was actually curious and I'm still excited to hear you know, uh, what, what Dahlbeck and Bobby have to say, cause it's, it's a lot of it's the same, but five different perspectives on the end of the band. And I feel fortunate to be able to, I mean, do you haven't, have you done any podcasts or anything since the, since the end of pain? I went, Antag went and played Sound and Fury last summer. And I did a video interview for a Cleveland dude who was making a movie. He like sat me in a corner and put a fucking big bright light on me. And, I think it was mostly like tour stories or like what hardcore meant to me as a kid. He was kind of just doing the comprehensive, his version of the hardcore doc. It, it was fine, but I have not, I was actually a little nervous for today because I haven't been interviewed, interviewed, I think since the, the last session for the doc, we did a wrap up after the last show, a few days he came here and we did a very, very long interview. And then we did a, may have been a year later six you know we did a sort of let's reconnect one last time type of thing and that's still going three three and a half years yeah it had been quite a while i was a little nervous no reason to be nervous man i think i was more nervous you're entering at a very interesting time where i think everyone is confused we're not communicating like james and i who are usually very tight He's got his own thing. You know, we're not talking about what do you think of all this right. re- reunion stuff. You know, James hit me up a few weeks ago and his text message said, yo, I'm so glad that none of us turned into those guys that are constantly posting photos on social media of like our glory days, that we right. all sort of avoided that. Here's me back in 94. Here's me playing this great big show that we don't keep going back to that well. Right. I agree. And that's obviously, it's never going to be me. I'm not comfortable in that spot, but it said something about, yeah, I, I mean, he may be in just a completely different place. You know, these, I just don't know if I can see it making its way back to being a puzzle that clicks together again. So you're right. in an interesting spot where I think everyone's a little confused. Right. The world's upside down. We're not really communicating. Everyone is kind of shook. 
what's going on with Stu. And everyone is also kind of thinking, I don't want to die with my regrets. I don't want to say goodbye to something that I, that I didn't have to. Some things right. don't have to die. You know, we can just say, I mean, we're a couple phone calls away from getting together in Bobby's basement and being like, I need to, let's try count me out. You know, like, ah, <laughs> uh, so now I, I know that, I mean, you write lyrics and you write, you know, antagonize and all that stuff. So, yeah. so did you have like a little, a little, a little book of rhymes over there where, where, where you have potentially like some, 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 something that could be a future Bane song. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. The answer would be yes. I keep a notepad in my phone and there are constantly lines or concepts or references or it would be cool to name a song this that I keep in there. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think Antagonize is going to have too much more of a recorded output going forward. But I I do keep stuff for just in case. Like, I don't know, maybe I start another band. You know, I, I don't really know where it goes from here. but. If I needed to write a Bane song next week, I'll tell you that I could write a Bane song next week. Of course you can. For sure. Uh, I could do it for sure. Dude, this this is fucking great, man. And <laughs> you didn't even get to talk about movies. I watched, the, <laughs> I watched Jesse Atkins. Is that his last name? Atkins, the dude from Cole's Life? Yeah. That was so cool for me because uh, I, don't, I don't know from that world. That is a world that was just oh, on, my, on my radar. Violence and hardcore. Very actually scary, scary dude. Yeah. This stuff is endlessly fascinating to me as a cinemaphile, as a big gangster movie guy. But obviously I took a different path. I'm up there begging kids not to dance with their fists shut. So right. we went different routes, but right. Colton's life always had a aura to them. When people yes. would when I would say, I don't really know them, I've never heard them, they would say, well, you know, that their minds would be blown. I don't how do you not know this record? And they start, you know, spitting lyrics. Just never really my thing. The more tough guy. Right. And the thing. We actually played with Colden's Life on our final tour. We played in the, with them in Chicago where we were all like, why are they on the show? What's going to happen? And it was, there were all these scary dudes at the bar and fucking motorcycle vests. And it was just like hoping, you know, hoping nothing pops off, hoping that everything will be peaceful. And it was, and it was beautiful. And Bobby, who was in Reach the Sky and sort of was much better at rubbing elbows with those rougher, hanging out at the bar type dudes. Scott Vogel is another one who can just integrate oh, with that world so well. Where I w was outside of it, way too insecure, way too afraid to even get to know these guys. I remember being upstairs and seeing them. Like there was kind of, the band room was set upstairs at the Chicago show and seeing the Colds' life dudes and their girls and they got they're drinking in the corner and Bobby's over there and they look fucking scary. They just look like the realest dudes. And yeah, I heard legends. I mean, I heard that, you know, there's Crown Thorns and Scarface, and then after that it's Colds' life as the realest dudes. Oh my jaw dropped open when you guys were telling the story about one of the singers getting murdered. I had no fucking idea. Yeah. The Fascinating to me, but also frightening to me as somebody who feels very protective about hardcore and doesn't oh, ever want sure. a single kid to get beat up at a show. Right. But anyway, so I'm watching. And it's funny. I started on Spotify listening, and then I realized, oh, there's video. he's videoing this. So then I went and found it on YouTube, 
and was watching him see this dude who previous I'd only heard his voice. And he's talking about movies and he so clearly loved hardcore. Yes. Loved a different stream of hardcore than me, but to hear him talk about how cold his life, how those blood for blood had saved him as a young kid who came from a hellish place and that gave him a home. Yeah. And then, and so then I find the video and I'm like, God damn, that is a scary looking motherfucker. Yeah. Jesse, Jesse is a sweetheart of a guy, but he looks like an actual. He loved you. I was just like, see, this is it, man. You cannot judge a book by his cover. If I had listened to this podcast before we played the show with him, I would have went up and shook his hand and said, yo, anybody who refers to William Friedkin as Billy, I got to have a talk with. Like, Without a doubt. Without a doubt. We're going to talk some movies. <laughs> yeah, you man. You on the spot and ask for your Desert Island movies. I was just like, yeah. this is so fucking cool. Yeah. I don't know about I don't know about that world of hardcore. I really, really intentionally right. stayed away from it because it was so scary and so violent to me. Right. It's funny because my favorite genre of movies is scary, gangster shit, violent shit. Sure. John Woo movies. Scorsese movies, those are my gods. Yeah, but when it spills over into hardcore. Now it's like in my backyard. And fifteen-year-old me, who was getting rocked at shows and starting to wonder right. if I even belong here, becomes very protective and is like, "Why are you fighting here? Like, right. what are we doing? Beating each other up over dance moves or over?" Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, and it's like it's like that like like when you listen to like Victim in Pain, it encapsulates and it has a certain sound and vibe to it of what New York City was like at that time. If you listen to, but it's still it was completely about unity though. Right. Victim in Pain, while it was a look into a world, right, that was very real. I I, I do remember feeling like this is for me too. Like he's to punks and skins. Yeah. Blacks and whites, he is singing about unity. United and strong, sure. Now, before but, I knew that there was hard rocks down there in New York, before I knew about the Chromags, before I knew that there were dudes like fighting in the streets down there, yeah. I heard Victim and Pain, and Victim and Pain told me that we're all in this together. Those were scary looking guys that had tattoos, yeah. but they were singing to me as like yeah. all of us. And if you listen to like, if you listen to Born to Land Hard, the first Cold as Life record, that just sounds, it's not necessarily about beating people up or anything. It's just, I mean, it just sounds like screams of desperation and a time in Detroit, which was very scary and it's very, very real. Super real. It's just like tired of swimming this river of life somewhere. This water has turned to ice. And it's like this whole, it's hard as fuck. And it's coming from a real place of guys who are living in squalor and fucked up childhood. And it's just real. So it's just, it's just that you hear that record. It's like, it's one of the hardest records ever. Because it's coming from such an honest, raw spot. Yeah. I mean, I know Detroit. I was, you know, I've been going to Detroit since like 96. So I've seen the hell that that place. Yeah. And it's, it would make a lot of sense to me that there were bands born of those streets. Yeah. Grew up not loving Chain of Strength and Inside Out, but, mm. loved, you know, fucking Biohazard and Madball and tougher yeah. bands. And I can completely understand how that would shape 
something like Cold as Life, where, these, where it's all real, it's all honest, and it's yeah. like real lawless kids that found punk and hardcore, but that were fucking sociopaths, that were wild cards. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. It's not my world. But it's not my world either, but I'm fascinated. No way do I roll my eyes at it or think that, you know, I'm fascinated with it. And when you guys, when he was talking about how there's stories that even he doesn't know, that the, that the whole history of the band is so sort of complex with things you don't talk about, things you're not sure really happened. Right. It's, like, it's it's heavy business, man. It's heavy. The dude who's very fascinated with organized crime, with you know, real worlds of violence. It's, yeah, I hope a Cold's Life documentary gets made because I would love. To. Oh my god, there was one in the works. I'll actually, I'll send I'll send you the the YouTube link. Um, Richie, the guitar player for Wisdom and Chains, was a uh, several years ago was trying to get. It's called Cold's Life, a Detroit story. Fuck, yeah. getting it together but there was so many moving parts like who's dead who's in jail who's missing who's this who's that it's like it's hard to to nail people down who's not going to talk who's it, so it's very hard or virtually pretty much impossible to get the entire true story wrapped up into a doc it's, it's heavy shit dude cool that, it's awesome, but I would love for it to happen. But who knows, man? But I'll, I'll, I'll send you the um, the the trailer because so that, trailer, so can, check out. It's called Born to Fall Hard. Born to Land Hard. Land Hard. I'll check that out. I've literally oh. I've never heard a song. Anytime I would tell dudes that, their eyes would bug out. I yeah, can't I can't believe that you just like like didn't even you you got the album title wrong just now. Like it's crazy to me. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. Born to land hard. It's ridiculous, man. Yeah. He seems cool, and I wish that I had listened to that podcast before. Yeah. Well, that was only two episodes. That was that was what like number nine or something like that. I don't know, but, but yeah, but yeah, man. He's um. I'll I'll send you a couple of links so on your face on your messenger or whatever. Yeah. yeah. He he just he got to be the third singer in that band. He grew up loving that band and going to all their shows, and then they came to him and are like. I guess so. Yeah, I mean, they had the original singer whose name was Ron, and he was the one that was murdered. Um, and then there was Jeff, who was on Born to Land Hard, and that's like the era that I first started listening. And that's like yeah, Jesse said, like that's his era of Cold as Life. And then they had another singer for a little while, and then the band was always in turmoil afterwards. And they had different lineup changes, and then Jesse has been that was the last singer of the band. So there was like four, there was like probably four different singers and he's like, I think the fourth. But there's so many, I mean, the last, the last lineup of that band, the only original person was the drummer. The drummer has been there since day one. No shit, respect to him. I love yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. You can so, really hear it, that it meant a lot to Jesse, that he was a part of this and that he was keeping this legacy alive that was a part of, such an integral part of his youth. Yep. To actually be a frontman for that band, like that's full circle shit, you know. It touched me a lot. It touched me a lot. How much you could see that this this meant to him. Sure. And the message and the, yeah. Yeah, dude. I'm glad I watched that one because that's usually something. I'm glad I, you did too. Who knew? I'm glad you watched it too, man. Good shit. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Well, now now you had said a little bit earlier that it might not be too difficult to get a bunch of you guys in a room to have a conversation. So I want that to happen. So hopefully sooner yeah, or later when the, when the world calms down. 
we're always looking for reasons to get together to go to a buffet or to go to the movies. Like if it was going to be, or we're going to go to New York and hang out with Jimmy and get a bunch of pizza and just sit around and tell stories. Like we love hanging out together. We fucking love it. I'll bet Dahlbeck would come up for that. I'm down. I'm down. You guys, you guys let me know. I'll work my way around you guys. I would love to do that. It would be a lot of fun. Maybe I could be this. Maybe I could be the seed and the one that to push this guy over the edge this way to pull this guy back from this way. I can't wait to hear what Zach had to say for himself because I'll tell you, I have no idea where his head is at with it. We have had no discussion. I love that. I love that you have no idea. <laughs> I'm not good at pressing him. I don't want to. I don't want to put him in an uncomfortable spot. I don't right. want him to say something just to please me. Like right. Zach is such a pleaser. He is so concerned with everyone else's well-being even to, to, to the detriment of his own that it's a little hard to take hard to know what he's really feeling or is he telling you what he knows you want to hear he's so good at reading the room right i'm always i'm nervous to put him on the spot i need kind of need him to come to me as, as stubborn and crazy as that sounds <clears throat> I'm going to try to be the asshole that does that. <laughs> well, we talk all the time. I mean, he doesn't have to come far. We are deeply in touch. Right. I'll nudge him. I'll, I'll, I'll come on. You got to, you got to, you got to bring this up. I'll poke him a little bit. Yeah, but he may not want to do it. He may be fine. Right. But, you know, there may be dudes in Bane who feel like that chapter was so perfect. We don't fuck with it. And I don't want right. to argue with that. I do not want to be a voice against that. I respect that. I respect that as well. Like it did end on a pretty nice note and we did drag out this concept of this is it pretty fucking far. Yeah. But turning back on it feels a little... A little weird. A little weird. Yeah. Dude. This fucking ruled. Okay. Yeah, I'm so glad, man. I'm, I'm sorry that I was hard to pin down. I'm not real good at the social media thing. listen and, and I, I even message you you're like oh i'm not really good at this i'm like you know what you're better off sometimes i'm not mad at you <laughs> you know it's i get it i I'm get it so, i'm getting it's become it's becoming worse and worse for me how badly all of the voices and all of the memes and all of the level of sarcasm oh uh, yeah dominate social media it's like yeah. tough for me yeah i i i i stay on the things that I post and the main, the 99% of the reason why I'm on any social media platform yeah. is to promote the podcast. That's that's it. Whether it's a band that's about to come on or, you know, I'll post like, you know, a video of a band, but I won't say that they're about to come on or it'll be just be like, all right, I have like something in the work. So here's a, a video of a band. It's always music slash podcast related for the most part. That. And the film location stuff that I post, that's basically it. As far as personal stuff, listen, you want to know about me? Anybody wants to know about me? Listen to the podcast. You'll find out everything about me on the podcast, about my whole life and everything involved. I don't need to post exactly what I'm feeling. Nobody cares. It's, it's really tough for me. This endless stream of people's faces every day. I need to see yeah. the fucking picture of your face or I have to yeah. see what your thought is on this and that. I don't care. I didn't ask for your opinion. And yeah, I know. I just scroll past it, whatever. Yeah. And I don't want to do the drastic. I don't need to do the whole drastic, like, oh, I'm going to get off of Instagram. I'm going to get off Facebook. I don't need to be driven 
out of it. You know, right. I need to just be able to limit my usage of it and use it to the way that it makes sense to me. I love seeing old hardcore photos. I love hearing about movies that are coming out. I need to keep up. Oh yeah, no, there's this great stuff that goes on there, but I just avoid the nonsense. I avoid the the whole look at me, pat me on the back, feel bad for me. I, I don't do any of that stuff. Oh. So really, it's a relief to hear you say that because I'm the same man. Uh, I don't do any of that. But I will say, yo, check out this cool podcast that I did. I will say that, but... I had so much fun the last two nights listening to the Scotty one and then listening to the Folders Life dude. I'm going to listen to more of them. Awesome. There's like a hundred... listening to hardcore podcasts. I listen to like history podcasts or other podcasts, but... Yeah, there's like 153 like regular (laughs) episodes. Damn, dude. How many years have you been doing it? What? Yeah. There's like 153, 100, 155 actual episodes. You're 13 of the isolation sessions, but they're full episodes as well. And then there's like 20 something, I call them bonus mini episodes where like if I'm at like a horror convention or something like that, I'll just use my phone and do, do a quick, like anywhere from like five minutes to like 25 minutes off the cuff with, like somebody who played in a movie or some actor of some, like like the guy who played fir- the first Jason ever, the bald kid from the first ever Friday 13th. His name is Ari Lehman. Like I became friendly with him. Yo, what's up? Let's do a quick thing. And just quick few minutes here and there. I just call them bonus mini episodes that I threw out whenever I have. So you I mean- Branch off from music then. You'll do other stuff. You'll oh yeah. I had like, um, like, I, like a few of them that popped in my head, like, I sat down face to face in a little small little cafe in Williamsburg with Havoc from Mob Deep. Nice. Which is weird. I just drew a Hail Mary and I, I asked all kinds of people. Like I've asked Mike Tyson. He never even read my shit, but I've harassed Mike Tyson. I try to throw out like certain people like from me that I would love the opportunity to talk to. But then again, like I've had, I had my, it was way back on like episode like 19. Like I had my, four-year-old daughter on you know what i mean but then i had like i've had like stunt people actors rappers graffiti writers people in metal bands hardcore people it's fun i had it wrong i thought it was like a hardcore metal music podcast i had it wrong no man it's it's all different kinds of people dude underground rappers from you know i mean from like having from mob deep to like ill bill and a whole bunch of people dude yeah danny boy from house of pain i had you know, I have a whole plethora because I say this all the time. It's like it started out as a hardcore thing. But then again, like after like 50 something episodes, it's like, how many times are we all going to agree that like the Age of Quarrel is a great record? That's exactly where I went initially. That's the record. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's the truth. It's like we all agree. It's a great record. <laughs> that is the most universal thing, right? Absolutely. Victim in Pain is the blueprint. Okay, we know. And and Agent Quarrel is Paula. Yeah. So it's it's basically it it turned into a thing all on its own. Whatever it is, it is. I'll have somebody on that's whatever they do, whether I respect you know, something whatever they do, whether it's being a graffiti writer or a filmmaker or a rapper or a singer for a hardcore band, if if I like your stuff or if I respect you and you have a story to tell, let's just fucking chop it up. No direction, no nothing. I do this shit for fun, man. I do it for fun. I'll tell you, it's an honor to be a part of it. I really, it makes that's, me... That's, that's just weird for me to even hear you say that to me, but I appreciate that. 
No, seriously. That's cool. I just thought it was like a little hardcore metal thing that this is 150. How many years is 150 episodes? Were we talking five years? years? Three years? Man, you go hard. That's amazing. One average once a week, Every, an episode a week. Yeah. You know, nothing impresses me like consistency. Like someone who just takes on a project and sticks with it. I love that. That's what I got to do. It's like, oh, I, I had no idea. It's like, I had no idea I would be three years in and have you guys. Like, I've had the opportunity to speak to, I mean, I'm a fan before anything. You know what I mean? So, like, just having this outlet, I've gotten a chance to speak with a hell of a lot of people that I would never have the opportunity to sit down and have a minimum of an hour long conversation with somebody face to face. You know, of course, like I'll see you at a show. Like I've seen you at a show, like it would so you killed it, like quick pound and keep it moving. And you know, you, you have quick little conversations with people at shows and stuff, but you don't have a one-on-one normal conversation with these people at shows. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's given me the opportunity to, I guess, quote unquote, get to know people that I listen to or grew up listening to or look up to in a certain way. And so it's cool. I'm a fan before anything, man. And sometimes it's like, holy shit, I can't believe that I'm actually speaking to somebody like whoever, like, like Vinny Stigma invited me. I was sitting in Vinny Stigma's house and drinking wine and he has wooden shoes on that he got in like fucking Sweden or something. He has these weird wooden clogs on, and he's sitting there smoking a cigar, drinking wine, and I'm like in his little ass apartment down in down in Little Italy, recording a podcast, and it's just like normal, and it's just it's just cool shit, man, and and I appreciate those. And people are like, oh, like a few, yeah, I'm a fucking fan, man. As I have no problem saying that, I appreciate these things. So. That one's on video, the one with Mikey and Vinny, or that? No, that, no. I started this whole video thing once the world went nuts. Oh, right, right, right. I'm gonna. Yeah. Listen. I love Mikey Gallo, man. That's my dog, right? Oh there. yeah. Well, I had Mike Gallo. Mike, I had I had Vinny and Mike Gallo on twice. It was the first time was way early. It was on my birthday, like two years ago, or maybe it was. It was like episode twenty something, and and then I had them on a few episodes ago when I went to Vinny's house. Cause it was like two years in between. It was like, it was like 88 episodes or something like that in between. I'm like, yo, you guys want to bullshit again? Like, yeah, meet me at Stigma's house. Uh, okay. So, well, I love it. Yeah, man. I love this shit. Time, man. We could just do a movie episode, man. I want to hear you talk about horror movies. Tell you about some of the shit I'm really into. Without a doubt, dude, I'm always down for whatever, man. I'm, I'm, I, like I said, I have no agenda. You want to bullshit? I'm down to bullshit whenever, yeah. dude. Yeah. Yeah. This was cool. And I'm not going anywhere for the foreseeable future, so. Right. Well, you and me both. Where where are we going? (laughs) You know? But but this was great, dude. And I have to ask you, well, I always say, I'm putting this out as a raw video like this on YouTube and on the Facebook group page. I just stream it. But I also, I'm going to extract the audio and I put on my my little intro. And then, like I asked the other guys, we have to end this. And it's your choice since it's the episode is you. You have to pick a Bane song to end this episode with, man. Yeah. Well, I heard you ask the last two, so I, I had this one on deck. Play "End with an Ellipsis." That's a favorite of mine. Wow. That's a favorite of mine. You There's got a, it, dude. Super happy with that one. I think that's a pretty emotional song. I think that, that was what kind of like a real good encapsulation of of what Bane was as a band. 
Okay. Not played very much live that I remember. No, we bailed on it, man. That was one that we bailed on. And then a friend of mine asked if we could play it on the last run. It really was going to mean a lot to her if we'd play it one more time. We learned it on the road on that final tour. Played it in Georgia and then Birmingham. Two nights in a row, she was at both of those shows. And then we may have played it. You would have to confirm. I would imagine we might have played it at the last show. I don't know for sure. Actually, I have to set up my phone. I think, I think you did. That was a song that we did not play for a lot of years. Just right. some, some, you know, thing with Bane was we didn't practice. Bane wasn't a band who practiced. So if we didn't play songs live enough, they would get thrown by the wayside. Suddenly I would try to slip it into the set list and someone would be like, oh, I'm nervous about that one. I would need to like, like her pretty lucky eyes. Yeah, her lucky pretty eyes. That I want. There's, there's some that just never got played again ever. No one ever hoods mentioned. Up, hoods up! I fucking love that fucking song. Yeah, there's a lot. There's we a would, lot. There were some people that were just super close to the band that were at a lot of shows, and if they would hammer away, please play the big gun down. Please play the big gun down. And we couldn't stand to disappoint them. We would relearn an oldie, but right. we were not good at doing it on our own. We had a nice canon of songs that we knew we could count on yes and uh yes some some of them sadly like people would ask for i once was blind yes we we just couldn't do it i you know what the last time we played that song we never we never revisited it it was a very long sprawling song it was exhausting to sing yeah you know kids would ask for it you know i want you know someone in fucking norway would come and say have one wish (laughs) <laughs> and we, couldn't we just couldn't, you know, we're not going to go back there and learn I Once Was Blind backstage right now. I don't even know the fucking lyrics. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Endless and Ellipsis was one that we did bail on. I'm, I can't say for how long, because I feel like we played it a lot. I feel, I have a memory of singing that song quite a lot live. But I guess in the last couple of years, we did bail on it, and then... uh we brought it back out for a couple nights there and it was so yeah. fun to play it. Awesome. And then for the last show, like we did a practice before the last show where we were like, you know, doing old demo songs. We were drumming with our, with Nick, you know, the drummer before Bobby, who came and played songs, you know, that only he had known how to drum. Man, you did like in pieces and shit. I remember that yeah. first bass line. I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. yeah. That final show. Yeah. Pot commit. I, I never go back and look at it, but I kept it. I try. I tried, but somebody it was fuck. It's a, somebody grabbed it because I have several of your set lists that like I ripped oh. off. Yeah, several. But there was somebody. I was at the. I was at this hardcore. The last this is hardcore you guys played, which was incredible. And somebody was literally like a foot, like 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 grabbed the set list off of Aaron's cabinet right before me. It was like, they, her hand, it was, I believe it was a girl, grabbed it. And then I was like, oh, and she looked at me. I was like, damn it. Like, you got it. You got it. I wanted that set list. I didn't get a final show set list, but I have like probably eight or 10 of you guys' old set lists. That meant a lot to me personally that, that those seemed to mean something to kids because I was the one who wrote them and did put a, a decent amount of thought to trying to just always keep it interesting and try yeah. to, it just brings you back to that time. Like this was at this show. I remember this show vividly. It brings you right back to that. Yeah. Absolutely. For the last tour, because usually I would only make three of them. I would make one for Zach's side, one for Bobby, one for the other side. And that was, I would do three. And right. for the last tour, I was doing five just because I knew like, 
I didn't want to do 20 and have it be too cheesy, but I knew right. that like kids yeah. are graduating and that means a lot to me. I could I could relate to wanting to get a hold of something like that from a band I love. I have a burn set list on my wall here. So nice. The last tour, I was making five. Nice. Awesome, dude. Bro, once again, thank you so much for your time, dude. The pleasure was all mine. This was a blast. I was so nervous, but it was so easy. Ah, no reason to be nervous. Dude, a lot of people say that, oh, I'm nervous. There's no reason to be nervous with this bullshit. Nervous. That's it. Yeah, it's good. I hope I didn't go too long, but yeah, you ever want to chop it up again? Even if you just want to say hi on Facebook, man, just talk about fucking Herschel Gordon Lewis movies. I'm down. Man. I'm down too. I'll definitely, I'll hit you up with a few things and we'll continue a conversation via that. Okay, well, good luck with the rest of the boys. Who you got next? Billy next? Uh, next, next is, um, next up is Dahlbeck. Can't wait to hear what that old bird has to say. Holy right, me neither. I can't wait either. This is going to be very cool. And then we're going to end with Bobby. But the first one will be released this Friday or next Friday. Zach's is going to. The, the, the 29th. So that's, I mean, we're on podcast time. Well, I don't even know what today's date is. This is quarantine time. I don't even know what day it is anymore. So like a little, a little over a week, a week from this coming Friday. Right. Yeah. At Friday, yeah, Friday the 29th at noon starts a five-week Every Friday at noon for five weeks. So get ready for a bunch of Bane kids. Oh, you got to listen to them all. Who the fuck is going to listen to all of us tell the same stupid stories? A lot of people will. <laughs> bro, you, bro, you're missed. You're missed. You missed all y'all. Awesome. Dude, love you, brother. I miss oh. your fucking band. If it ever happens again, I'll be there. You'll be there. I I'm steal, I'll steal your microphone and your set list. Yeah, watch out for that back. Right, yeah, now nah, my back is fucking ready. All right. All right, Jimmy, but, we'll talk again soon, man. Thank you so much for this. Much respect, brother. Peace. Later.